Dr. Dave Rabin is a clinical psychiatrist specializing in chronic stress management, addiction, and trauma therapy, and he's also a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy pioneer. He has his whole ketamine psychotherapy program that's laid out, and it looks phenomenal. He's also been trained in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. He's really an amazing mind, and we have a beautiful conversation talking a lot about ketamine and a lot about life and all the amazing ways to explore your psyche. I can't wait to share this show with you. This episode is brought to you by Onnit, onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything. By Killcliff, killcliff.com, code word AMP for 20% off. And by 8sleep, 8sleep.com slash AMP to save $150 on the Pod Pro. So ketamine is one of those medicines that is on the forefront of a lot of clinicians' minds because it's one of the first legal, technically it's not a psychedelic, but people lump it in the psychedelics category. So one of the first legal psychedelics that are available for therapy and treatment that's been allowed. And the ability to access different parts of the psyche in this kind of well, I'll let Dr. Dave explain exactly what that experience is. But in the state that ketamine creates is really opening up a lot of possibilities for some really deep healing work. So if you have any experience with ketamine, this is amazing to help you understand the direction and possibility of where it can go. I also share a lot of my experiences. And if you've never heard of it at all, it's also a great podcast to explore. Plus, Dr. Dave has a ton of wisdom. I told him that I wouldn't call him Dr. Dave unless he was administering his doctor work to me. And after this podcast, I 100% felt like that was the case. So can't wait to share this conversation with you. But first, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, they're saying, what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of? How do you fit it all in? And my explanation was really, look, I've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools, all of the different supplements, all of the foods, all of the practices. And I don't do everything every single day. That would be crazy. But I know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So that's how I do it. And on it is a huge indelible part of this process for me. And I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. Next up, we have Kill Cliff. Kill Cliff is a new sponsor, but it's by far the best tasting CBD drink that I've ever had. And not only that, they use only really clean ingredients. It was founded by a Navy SEAL looking to provide a different alternative to all the crap energy drinks that are out there on the market. And he wanted something that was clean. He wanted something that tasted good. Killcliff is awesome. They've been so generous. They sent us a fridge to the office stocked with all kinds of Killcliff. And I hardly even had a chance to try all the flavors because the team <laughs> drank them all. We're going to get more Kill Cliff. No problem there. Don't worry about us. But nonetheless, it's just a phenomenal drink. And it's something that you just want to have some of these cans available for you. So I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to killcliff.com. Use the code word AMP, AMP, for 20% off site-wide. And explore around. 
Try out the Flaming Joe. Try out all the great flavors. And you're not only going to get the benefit of CBD, which you've heard me talk about a lot, but also clean ingredients, a delicious drink, and you can get it caffeinated if you want that extra boost to keep you fucking fired up. So once again, check it out. Go to killcliff.com. Use the code word AMP for 20% off site-wide. And finally, we have 8sleep. Now, I've had the privilege of getting a lot of different mattresses. And the advantage of that is I get to try out a lot of different mattresses. And the latest one that I'm going to talk to you guys about is 8sleep. Because not only is 8sleep a dope mattress, like some of the other mattresses that I've talked about, but 8sleep also weaves in temperature regulation. And this is something that is incredibly valuable because... When we sleep, we oftentimes will get hot. And as we get hot, that will often pull us out of our sleep rhythm, our natural sleep rhythm. I mean, normally we were sleeping on the ground and the ground would get cooler as night fell. And as the ground got cooler, we would fall deeper and deeper into sleep. And then as the earth started to warm, we would warm back up. So you can go down to as cool as 55 degrees or look. If you really want to warm up your mattress because you're in a cold place, it can get as hot as 110 degrees. So the temperature regulation in the 8 Sleep Pod Pro is really awesome. And it's been cool to check that out. So if that sounds like something interesting to you, I mean, there's some great research. 8 Sleep users falling asleep up to 32% faster, reducing sleep interruptions by 40%, getting more overall restful sleep. I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to 8sleep.com slash amp. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash amp. Check out the Pod Pro and you'll save $150 at checkout using the promo code AMP. Once again, 8sleep.com slash AMP to save $150 at checkout with the promo code AMP. And now, an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Dave Rabin. Dr. Dave Rabin, good to have you here, brother. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, man. It's been in the works for a while. It has. It has. This is definitely overdue. And a topic that I'm really excited to talk about, and I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of different things but ketamine therapy is something that i haven't got a chance to really talk to someone you know deep in the work and really discuss what's going on because it's a really interesting time because not only is the ther- the therapeutic model but there's a lot of people with nose sprays you know mm-hmm. and these nose sprays are being used sometimes recreationally sometimes ceremonially and you know like a lot of these medicines you know psilocybin mdma this is just the nature of it when uh, the legislation is lifted in my opinion doing overall far more good than detriment but there are some you know there are some issues that are concerning for sure but uh yeah so let's let's just jump right in to the a general overview for those people who don't really understand what ketamine is and and then talk a little bit about how it's used therapeutically and then we'll we'll go from there sure that's a great place to start you dive right into the k-hole right <laughs> yeah so. for sure why avoid it so. yeah <laughs> Never works out so well with these medicines. So, so I, you know, for those who don't know, so I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and I study these medicines, and the mostly focused on the rec- the um, mechanism of how they work in the body. And ketamine is really interesting because it is the most one of the most fully synthetic, commercially available, and only commercially available legal psychedelic medicines. So it is available for everyone to use legally by prescription, which is pretty interesting and mm-hmm. it's short acting and it's been studied for 
probably over 70 years in people from, you know, evacuating wounded soldiers from Vietnam through um, anesthetizing pregnant women, children, and horses that require very gentle anesthesia because people who are in vulnerable states like children, pregnant women, and, and horses, which are very sensitive animals, can react very badly to anesthesia. And that can have a lot of downstream negative effects. So ketamine actually became popular in the anesthetic world because it was so useful for these purposes. Our kittens just were spayed and neutered. And they were, they use ketamine? They were given ketamine. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. So there you go. And uh, yeah, I'm so I was just connecting to their experience of what it must have been like <laughs> as, as they were on this journey in the vet's office. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, because it's something that a lot of people didn't understand for a long time. And to give you an, an idea, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories about ketamine that my my father-in-law is an anesthesiologist and he was one of the first people to start using ketamine, you know, back 50 years ago in the OR. And they were just bringing out ketamine and saying, you know, and educating the doctors about how to use it and saying, hey, here's an alternative anesthetic. Let's see, you know, let's, let's use it. Let's, it's been tested. We know it's safe for the most part. At that point, you know, it was a long time ago. Let's tr let's we're going to start using it in patients. Here are the protocols, and and let's try it and see if it works better and has less side effects than some of the other anesthetics. So, the one of the first patients that he administered ketamine to, uh, of course, this is at very high doses, very mm. much much higher than we use for psychotherapy, and he gives the he, he gives the patient ketamine. The pa patient goes under, and this is in combination with other anesthetics for a big surgery. At the end of the surgery, the patient sits up, wakes up right out of it, and sits up straight out of the bed and looks right at him and says. I am the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wow. And he was like, I don't know if we're going to keep using this, guys. <laughs> you could imagine like how frightening an experience like that sure. would be, not only for, I mean, probably the patient wasn't that frightened in the moment, but maybe a little confused, whereas the doctors were like, oh my God, what did we just give this guy? Yeah. And not knowing anything about, you know, none of these people had experience with psychedelic medicines. LSD had just been around and then basically illegalized, you know, within 20 years. And psilocybin was studied, but not really used that much. And it wasn't used at all in therapy or in by anesthesia or ER docs or in the hospital. Every, all of this was foreign to these people. So they were like psych consult, you know, mm -hmm. like, could we get a, we need a psychiatrist here in stat? <laughs> you know, the thing about that statement is if you would have just said, I am Jesus Christ and everyone else is too, then all of a sudden he goes from a crazy person to a mystic. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, he didn't say that, so he's in the crazy person. And that, that's an amazing point to, 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 to switch over because that is the whole idea of these medicines is that they are teachers that require framework right. for, around them, which you've talked about you know, with Michael Pollan and, and with Luke and, and, and the, the idea that you, know, you can administer these medicines and they work really well in many contexts if they're just given alone. However they can also amplify things that are not necessarily desirable. And no one, I can't remember who came up with this description, but one of my favorite descriptions of psychedelics is as nonspecific amplifiers to human experience. Yeah, referring particularly to LSD is, uh, is where they usually use that moniker. But yeah, right. it's, it's... But any of them. All, any of them can any be, yeah. Them. And so this, the experience, like basically what you bring into the experience has a dramatic impact on what you get out of said experience, right. you're, which you know, oftentimes we call intention and preparation around intentions, where you're focusing your human energy and your attention when you go into a potentially transformative experience that you know you're going to have, which we 
which is really the brilliance of psychedelic medicines, specifically the drugs, because they allow us to administer ketamine as one example for a three-hour period where we know you're going to be in an altered state of consciousness. We know roughly what that's like because we have ourselves used it in our own training because it's legal. And we can guide you through it because we know where you're going to be for that half an hour, yeah. hour, hour and a half. And it becomes effectively a catalyst. Going back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago, it's basically a catalyst for a natural experience of transformation that we all have the ability to access at any time. But there's been a narrative playing in our minds that we may not even be aware of that is the narrative by which we live our lives. And until you press pause on that narrative and come back to balance and homeostasis and say, wait a minute, this is who I am. I, I am me. The experiences I've had are important, but they're not who I am. They don't define mm. me. They teach me. And, and this experience, similarly, is also a teacher. And what it's teaching me is that I have the ability to heal myself. And that's how we frame ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, but ideally all psychotherapy to make sure that people get as much out of it as possible and don't become dependent on the medicine. Right. As far as mechanism of action, I was reading uh, Jamie Wheel's book, Recapture the Rapture. I had him on the podcast. Great book. Great book. I was and, just hanging out with him before this. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Um, he was talking about how ketamine, as well as nitrous, nitrous does it in the most extreme way, but ketamine drops your brainwave state into a pretty low delta. And this is kind of curious as far as a mechanism of action, because it seems like those things, nitrous, ketamine, they give you access to this kind of void state. You know, and I think that obviously correlates to what's happening in your brainwave state is in that delta we experience in the deep dreamless sleep, which is like right. a void state. And then if we get to it in a waking state, it's also in this kind of interesting void state. Now that's not to say that visions won't appear or things won't happen in the void, but it's very interesting how that creates this kind of reset for the body as well as the material that you're able to work through, but also the almost the inaccessibility of the memories and the things like it's very slippery when you're in in that deep in the ketamine i mean there's so many times where i've been in a journey and been like i've fucking figured it out right you're welcome everybody i've figured it out and then i come out of it and i'm like and 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 then <laughs> yeah. i'm pretty sure i figured it out right but i don't know how <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and, and it's ineffable it's like hard to verbalize totally. and put into words and to some extent, we don't even we haven't necessarily been taught the vocabulary to mm -hmm. be able to effectively describe these experiences, right? Which is why the education around these experiences is so critical, because you give people the words to right. be able to take with them what they feel and what they learn and experience, and then integrate those words into the new narrative of how you want your life to be by knowing who you actually are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what so, do you so think the, is... But the, but the mechanism, I was going to yeah. say the mechanism, because I don't want to ignore your question. Yeah. The mechanism of ketamine is really interesting. It's also really complex. And I think to say that it's entirely based on getting into this delta wave state is not the whole story mm -hmm. because there's so much other stuff going on, right? And ketamine, for instance, activates a ton of different receptors in the brain, more than a lot of the other psychedelics, which typically, like we think of as activating the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor pathway, sure. which is involved in shifting meaning. Ketamine seems to do the same thing in terms of shifting our sense of meaning that we make from ourselves and from our experience, but it also activates all these other receptors and it's an anesthetic. So to your point about it, the experience is being slippery. That's It's not just because we don't have the words, it's also because it's numbing to some extent mm. to our 
mind-body association, which is why we call it a dissociative substance. And so that makes it literally harder to take things out of it because it is anesthetizing. It decreases sensitivity, Mm -hmm. right? So other psychedelics don't always do that, but there are really great uses for anesthetizing somebody a little teensy bit during a psychedelic experience. So somebody who's had very severe trauma, for instance, typically will respond really well to a medicine that takes the edge off the pain and the suffering and the shame and the guilt that might typically accompany the recollection of traumatic memories and experiences. You're not necessarily going to get that that soft, gentle, handheld experience when you're walking somebody through a psilocybin experience, right? It might throw their trauma in their face and it might give them the physiological response of actually being there, which can also be therapeutic. It's just not necessarily as pleasant and comfortable and easy for people to access. And so yeah. oftentimes we, we rec- I mean, we recommend ketamine as a opportunity for people to, who have, especially who have never had psychedelic medicine before to kind of Vet, you know, get their feet wet in what an altered state of, of consciousness is like because it's only an hour and a half. It's really safe. If you use it in at the doses for therapy, people, you know, over a very short amount of time, people don't have side effects of any significant degree. Mm-hmm. And they do get some of the long-term benefits that of persistent uh, integration, helping basically take what you learn from the medicine and making it part of your life. So it has a lot of advantages that can, when MDMA and psilocybin become legal in 2023, we'll be able to bridge that gap for people and yeah. get them into the more in-depth work if yeah. they need it. I was speaking with uh, Michael and Annie Midhofer, who are doing- They're lovely. Yeah, they're lovely. And they're deep in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy world. And let me, you know, I'm going to be summarizing what, what they're saying, and they obviously had a bit more nuance in that. But they were explaining that MDMA's value in helping people process trauma is it allows you to access those memories whether it's sexual abuse or some traumatic event or some you know something that's generating that ptsd or just general non-specific trauma that you have but access it but because of the serotonergic qualities and all of the incredible feeling that's in your body you're actually rewriting the negative emotions that are usually brought up when you access that memory and overriding them with the positive feeling that you have and the trust that you have from the medicine. And so it's almost like a like a floppy disk that's getting overwritten. While the memory is the same, the emotional signature changes. And then they explain that ketamine is doing something similar and that it's allowing you to access those memories, but with a neutral emotional signature. So it may not be overriding it with love and safety and, and all of these things that MDMA is doing, but it's helping you rewrite it, access it without the pain. And so it allows you to go through it take a look at it and start to rewrite some of that really painful emotional signature which makes the memories traumatic which then causes the brain to wall it off and then it becomes that little demon in your in your mm-hmm. in your psyche behind bars basically that's starting to subconsciously control your actions and behaviors is that kind of how does that make sense in a in a description and how would you kind of add on to that analysis i i think that's a great metaphor and and just to put it out there, Mike and Annie Midhoffer trained me in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and uh, they are they are just incredible mentors, and um, their work is really inspiring. and And they, uh, you know, they pioneer the MAPS MDMA phase uh, phase three protocol for doing psychotherapy with MDMA for people with severe PTSD. And Phil Wolfson, 
who is the leader in the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy world, helped co-develop the uh, MAP psychotherapy protocol with MDMA for people with severe medical illnesses, mm. um, which is really interesting. Um, and so they all work together on the protocols together, which is why the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy protocol, for all intents and purposes, is so similar to the MDMA-assisted sure. protocol. So I think that there's, to throw an, an additional, you know, caveat in there about the way that these kinds of things work it's 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 the language at the core of how we describe ourselves and how we describe the world around us which is based mostly on what we've been taught and who we've seen growing up talk about the world we internalize that like sponges especially as children mm -hmm. and the emotional the emotional words the emotional context of experience that we have growing up and the way people judge those is either good or bad rather than just hey this was an experience you had right? right let's let's see how this unfolds we don't necessarily know whether it's good or bad while it's happening but we can but we can think about it as what it is and then later come back to it in when we when we're when we're feeling safe and comfortable and then judge it or appraise it rather and and think about what does this actually mean in my life maybe mm. it's not good or bad maybe it's good and bad which it turns out most things usually are a little bit good and a little bit bad yeah it's hard to hard to find thing something that isn't a little bit of both right and so what i was talking about with, actually uh, you probably know rachel yehuda who did a lot of the epigenetics work who runs the psychedelic and trauma department at sinai mm -hmm. um you know she and i were talking the other day about how she's one of the le world's leading trauma experts who discovered that tr that people with ptsd who experience trauma have changes in the epigenetic code that regulates gene expression of stress response genes and probably reward response genes, which condition the amygdala, right? So the amygdala being the fear and reward center, or, or you know, what we think of as often the fear center of the brain, mm. connects directly to the emotional center of the brain, which then tells us what to do based on the fear actions. And it basically detects familiarity versus unfamiliarity. And so trauma, is something that you don't even know you've had until you have a chance to appraise it in the, in the future tense, looking back, right? So we often think of having an experience and we're like, oh my God, that experience just traumatized me, right? But then you've actually traumatized yourself by labeling it as trauma. Mm. So the experience is the experience. Trauma is a judgment of that experience. Which then reinforces what happens in the experience because there's certainly i mean you're certainly awash with whatever neurochemical cocktail happens for the adrenaline noradrenaline that's the whatever comes at the at the moment of terror or at the moment of you know whatever that is that that is real right to a certain extent absolutely and then but then what ends up happening is the way that we look at it then decides how much that sinks in so to speak how, like how, how it gets recorded mm. right how, how not how necessarily how much it sinks in but when it sinks in what does it get associated with is it associated with emotions of of awe or is it associated with emotions of great shame and guilt and sadness or is it associated yeah. with emotions of fear and and um disgust or joy or or just a mix of a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't necessarily figured out yet because it's so complex, right? And we sometimes jump to the first one, which is fear. And yeah. we're and it's okay to be afraid, especially if you're afraid in a situation where you're not 
your survival isn't threatened and hopefully your your personal rights aren't threatened. Fear is a very important signal to us. But when we judge it, we actually change the way that we think about it. So to not go too much on a segue here, the reason why this ties back to you, what the, the great explanation that you gave about sort of the similarity between ketamine and MDMA is, and how they work is that they take the edge off that fear because that fear gets recorded in the amygdala and between the amygdala and the emotional cortex and then between there and the hypothalamus, which governs all of our body's reactions like racing heart rate, increased blood pressure and vasoconstriction and sweating and and uh, all the other things that happen when we uh, get stressed out and afraid, um, that gets recorded into a memory loop, which is a, which is a neural network that's functioning because it perceives that we are under survival threat. So when you take the edge off of that biochemically with MDMA or ketamine, especially for people who can't do it with therapy alone, you're giving them a chemical assistant, basically, that says for this period of time, you're going to have the opportunity to go back and reappraise almost like the cartoons. You remember Looney Tunes when we were kids? And then you'd have somebody, a character would die and their ghost would go up to heaven and <laughs> yeah, St. Totally. Peter would come <laughs> totally, down and be totally. like, we're going to go back and look at your whole <laughs> life yeah, and yeah. how you got to this moment. Oh, yeah, That is it. That is what the medicines are doing, but literally within our memory and within the epigenetic code and the, and the way that our neurons talk to each other. And then that allows the rewiring to happen by remembering those experiences from a standpoint of safety and relieving them of the judgment. Yeah, right? yeah, and and I've I've seen that happen. I've seen people go and find the gratitude in even a horrific event. And when they reach the gratitude, they've re-encoded that thing with not okay. Yes, it might have been really tough, but it gave me these X superpowers. Exactly. You know, like I became an incredibly successful entrepreneur. I became an incredibly successful athlete because I was trying to feel safe, and and my power and my money made me feel safe. But now I have this huge platform, and now I can do so much good in the world. And without that, who knows what I would have done? Maybe I would have been, you know, worked in an ice cream shop, right. like whatever, right? right? So, and I've literally seen that happen. I've been blessed to be in the room during some of these MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions, and so. But the re-encoding of the memory is so interesting because it, it reminded me. So I had a girlfriend from Australia who moved out here with me when I was fresh out of college and her name was Angie and we went down to San Antonio and San Antonio has this like Ripley's believe it or not house of horror and they do wow. a damn good job live actors and it's Ripley's and it's yeah. like they crush it I mean I don't know if it's still there or not but anyways we were going it's middle of the day you know we're sober middle of the day and we're going through this thing and as soon as we get to the first room and the way it's set up is as soon as you enter the first room, it's a seamless door. So there's no going back. There's only going mm -hmm. forward. And there was like bodies hanging from meat lockers and they're swinging around and lights are flashing and the music is scary. And then there's real people weaving through. Yep. And she has a hysterical breakdown. Goes up, curls up in the fetal position and is like yelling. And I'm like, oh dear, we just started this, right? I'm like, listen, it's not real. It's not real. Don't worry about it. It's not real. And she's like, just having a full panic attack. And I was like, all right. The only way out is forward. No one's coming right. to save us here. They don't right. care. They're probably watching this on a camera somewhere, loving it. That's good metaphor for yeah. life right there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyways, I have her on my back and she's so scared 
that she doesn't want to touch anything. So she's keeping her legs straight down. So she's not even wrapping them around me. So I'm just like holding onto her in the most uncomfortable way, getting choked and her hands are like, yep. her feet are straight down and we're going through. And meanwhile, we go from room to room. I'm like stumbling into the exit. The bodies are swinging in the first room and banging into us. And she's yelling, like screaming every time it happens. And we make our way through. I'm fumbling around and all these things. And there's all of these live actors that continue to scare us. And I'm looking at them like, come on bro can you not see like we're just trying to make it through this yep. right and then we go to this room where the whole the whole room is like a tube and it's spinning and i'm trying to walk on this bridge and it's incredibly disorienting <laughs> like american gladiator yeah <laughs> so i'm like running into the rails and she's yelling and screaming finally like 20 minutes later we make it through we make it through <laughs> she had peed on me at some point <laughs> during the whole process i was like soaked down my back we get to the final elevator and it's like it's like the live actors could smell blood it was like their yeah. favorite part of the day and one tries to like come into the elevator on the way it's like for one final scare and she rips off she had high heels on at the time she liked high heel he rips off a high heel and goes to swipe right at his eyes oh and i God. just grab her stomach in time to like push her back and she like barely misses like barely misses this guy i'm like oh we gotta goodness. get out of here anyways we get out into the daylight you know she takes some breaths and the funny thing is like within you know an hour a day a week a month it was all laughter mm -hmm. about that thing so while that experience had the emotional signature of something that was legitimately as terrifying as she'd probably been in in her whole life, right. her memory encoding of it was, well, that was funny because it wasn't actually dangerous. So there wasn't any fear. So I would venture to say that there is zero trauma that was created from that experience. But I've never really made that connection about how important it is what we label something. Yep. And also why, you know, so much of the sexual trauma is so difficult because it's so enshrouded in shame. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's like I felt pleasure from this thing and then shame just compacts it and, you know, makes it so, so heavy and so deeply rooted. And it's, it's really interesting to think about how that works in the brain and how much power we have to re-encode something if we can see from the right perspective and of course these medicines certainly help us to get to that perspective but it's the re-encoding that's really doing so much of the work absolutely and the re-encoding is and that's a great that's a great story and and we actually <laughs> because of people's experiences like that i don't know did she have i want I, I meant to ask did she have any experiences after leaving where she felt more calm than she did or that you notice any kind of more a sense of of more rela uh, relaxation or lower fear threshold um, after than she did before she walked in. I th I think I think like in a way you know because in a way like there was in a way it was she was like a like a fuck no to a, to scare me but it was always with a smile. <laughs> it right. was like I'm not doing this you know like and in a way there was a kind of ease around it where before there was this like curiosity and this idea of like maybe I should, maybe it'll be this. And she's like, no, I'm not doing this. Like, and it was just, but it was, there was a sense of ease about these different situations where before there was a sense of unknown and this slight allure, but slight fear and mm -hmm. slight all of this. And, and that created tension, I would say, when a scary thing right. would come up. Whereas this point, she understood her boundaries. She's like, I am not interested right. in that thing again. And I'm all good with that. And so there was, yeah, there was a sense of ease, I would say, that came from it. But I wasn't paying attention to other cues sure. like the question that you're potentially asking me.
Well, the reason why I ask is because there's been a theory for a long time in the cognitive neuropsychology world that that we all have like a fear set point that is based on any number of experiences that have led up to this point in our lives that kind of is a threshold basically for when our sympathetic nervous system starts to really kick on and be like, you should worry about survival right now, right? Mm. And one of my colleagues who helped code, who co-invented the technology behind Apollo with me at the University of Pittsburgh decided to explore this because he loved to explore really interesting uh, phenomena. And so he ended up, ended up uh, co-creating a haunted house that was one of the top 10 scariest haunted house in America, similar to what you're talking about. Yep. Very similar, except, oh, and, and with, it was probably very similar because it had live actors that would interact with you and mm-hmm. put a hood over your head and separate you from your partner. And it was like, <laughs> wow, it was really crazy. <laughs> That's, they're going for it. It was, it was out, out of control. And they would, what they would do is, is they'd measure people's uh, responses to threatening images and sounds and things like that using EEG brainwave assessments and EKG cardiac assessments before they went into the ha- haunted house. And after they left and they'd gone through all these terrifying experiences and what they found was that the fear response was very much downregulated after they went through because mm. they had an opportunity to experience something that objectively is extremely frightening except they weren't at an actual danger risk. And so the theory was that if you can, which is similar to, in some cases, what we do with cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure, but way more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Exposure right? and response therapy. Right, ERP. Um, where you expose somebody in a very gentle way to things that would trigger them or set them off in an extremely safe environment. And then they have the opportunity to reflect on that internally, sometimes externally in conversation with a therapist or in journaling. And they realize that they can be safe around something that used to really, really terrify them. And all of a sudden, you start the rewiring process naturally, right? And it's the idea of like holding a child's hand when they're uh, afraid of the dark, you know, and walking them through through a place or swaddling a baby or something like that. It's the same idea because that touch from a parent or a loved one that they trust instantly sends safety signals to their brain that says, you don't actually need to be afraid right now. And sometimes they're still afraid in the moment, but when they get out, they have the opportunity to reappraise. And then as they think about it more, it actually retrains their neural networks to be more functionally helpful rather than to just react at any in a kind of a mixed up way where you know they're not sure what they're afraid of but little things can set you off at any moment yeah it's uh it's a very interesting thing one of the most pervasive fears that all of us have of course is the fear of death sure and the fear of the unknown that happens on the other side of death was as you said there's the known and then there's the unknown that's what the amygdala is really looking Mm -hmm. for and the ultimate unknown is the death unless you've experientially explored to a degree where you actually feel like you have an idea of what that's like. And ketamine is one of those medicines that can bring you to a place where you are simply the void. And you are a perspective within the void. You maintain a perspective in the void, but it Which is also it, kind of unique. It for is psychedelic pretty unique. Medicines. Yeah, it, is, it it definitely is. Like I don't know any other void medicine like that. Right? Everything else is so rich. Even, you know, 5-MeO-DMT it's unicity like but it's so full of you know sensory information i mean indescribably so right that's why you describe it as love capital l love or god because right. you can't describe what it is but nonetheless for me and you lose your sense of self you do lose your, it's just you're in the oneness ketamine can bring you to the oneness close to that but you also maintain perspective in a unique 
in a unique way. But I think that can also help reprogram our fear of death and fear of the unknown. Like, what is it like when I lose my body, lose myself, and I'm simply a perspective, you know, one window through the capital M mind of of source or God or whatever your language permits. But uh, I can imagine how that, you know, for anybody, even people who don't have traumatic, trauma-based fear, this universal fear, the fear of death, experiencing something where you go deep on a ketamine journey like this and realize like okay that's not so bad you know like i I, like i was pretty good in there yeah you know like that was that was all right i mean i love coffee and hugs (laughs) and sex and you know i'm happy i have a body but that other thing was that other thing was cool too yeah yeah i think the it's a really great point uh i think that uh Ketamine is really interesting in that way and in, in in that it brings you into this this space of consciousness where you have a lot of agency still and I've known people who have literally just by thinking about it pull themselves out of that void which is really really interesting because I think it goes to show the the true power of the body and and the mind and that you know we actually have the ability to to change the way we're responding to a psychoactive substance in real time and completely negate the effects like that's pretty wild and people think of mind power right you're changing the way that your body is responding to a a chemical in nearly real time and there but that space that ketamine brings you to is really it's a space that is it's 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 so some people do get into this void space but then the void what's interesting about the void that is that the void is not it, it at first appears as nothing right it appears as a void empty and then you realize well, what's the void it's also everything one and the same right it's pregnant with every single possibility right and so that recog- that recognition co- only comes when you ask the questions right what is this that i'm experiencing not necessarily trying to analyze it or or say how think about the how or the why mm. or all those really complicated questions but just the what um of you know what is this space what am i feeling right now and and what happens is in those situations your your body answers or your intuition or or as maps calls your inner healer whatever it is that you want to think of it as there's a part of you that does is familiar with this space that helps to respond and answer back to you with what it is you need to know about space you're in and how to navigate it. One of the most interesting insights that I ever had from ketamine, which is actually during an experience with with Phil Wolfson, was um, the single phrase of everything is as it should be. Mm. And we spend so much time thinking about how we <laughs> wish things were. Yeah, sure. And I spend so much time thinking about how I need to be more patient. And I shouldn't rush things because when I rush, I make mistakes. And I thought about that how many thousands of times, and I still rush, and I still make mistakes, <laughs> and I still am impatient, and you know, I, I still do the same stuff over and over again. And then I have this one experience where all of a sudden, the insight is just crystal, crystal clear. Right? Everything is as it should be. Everything will unfold as it will. And when you recognize that, and you actually internalize what that means. It means that our goal is to follow our, our path, right? To find our path and to follow our path. That's the meaning of life, mm. right? It's not that much more complicated than that. If everything is as it should be in this void space and in 
the everything space, which are connected intimately, then our, our goal is to figure out what our potential is as human beings, right? Yeah. What are we actually capable of in this, what some people call the meat suit, in this meat mm. suit life, right? What is it we're capable of? And I think one of the biggest fallacies of Western education that I thought really did not serve me well personally and also many of my clients is the idea that you're supposed to know who you are. Who the fuck knows who they are? Yeah, because where's the beginning and where's the end? Especially when you experience yourself as void. Right. And you're like, okay, I mean, I'm everything and nothing and something, particularly. Well, even out, even outside the ketamine experience, though, how are you supposed to know <laughs> who you are? I feel like it's even more complicated outside of the experience. Right. Inside of it, you're like, okay, I'm this bo- I'm this ball of energy, and I'm in this body right now, and, <laughs> and that seems pretty clear, but because <laughs> I can't. I, and I can't, that's where it's simple. <laughs> yeah, right. That's where it gets really simple. But then when you when you think when you think about like for like as one example like, that you brought up earlier of an experience that you would never be grateful for in the moment. For, for me, it was being bullied in school, right? Like I was a little different than the other kids. I had different interests than the other kids. Um, and having those experiences as a child, I were very painful. I would have feeling excluded from the social group, your social circle and the community around you just because you might talk or think about things a different way or whatever. I mean, that's really, really hard for kids. And how many kids go through that and have that pain. Now it might be more common than it was when we were kids because of cyberbullying. And I would have never expressed gratitude for that in the moment. And yet now, after I see, and I'm not saying that, I, I would say that we need, you know, we need to firmly do everything we can to you know, encourage sharing and empathy and eliminate bullying. But I can, I can say firmly now that because I went through that, even though as, it, as painful as it was at the time, it helped me to ask the harder questions about myself and what made what makes me different. What is it that that makes me who I am? What am I capable of that maybe these other people were incapable of seeing when we were children? Mm-hmm. What makes me special that made me stand out, right? And maybe that's something to embrace rather than to shun because it's just who I am. I can't change who, what, what I was given when I had birth, all I can do is make the most of it. Uh, like J.R., like Tolkien says, right? We only, all we can do is make the most of the time that was given to us. Mm. And so the best way you can make the most of the time it's given to you is to embrace the unknown. The unknown is everything. The known, the known is like less than 1% of everything. Yeah. The unknown is everything. So if we only embrace the known and we alienate the unknown, then we literally trap ourselves in a, in a, box of extremely limited dogmatic consciousness that is not at all accurate to what the whole really is and it, and so this is a lot of the work we do with our clients is to is to take help people understand that when they have PTSD they feel totally unable to do anything to change their outcome they feel powerless they feel uh, disconnected from themselves and from the community they feel ashamed of what they're experiencing and totally out of control and just thinking about all of that is so difficult and so and and it and they their certainty is that i know that this is me right so it's a self-reinforcing narrative and so what we teach them is actually you may not know who you are can you can you accept that it's possible that you may not know because who you are is is 
always changing. It's like Heraclitus has one of my favorite quotes of all time. No man steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. It's a great quote. You can never pin down yourself because the one who's pinning down the self is then different than the one who's being pinned. Just right? like quantum like, theory, right? The, yeah, yeah, like the, it's impossible. It gets fractal and it'll bend your mind when you try to actually decide. I was, <laughs> I was been trying to write a book called Master Your Mind and then I eventually recognized that the inherent challenge of trying to figure out who is the one that's mastering the mind that is not the mind and then going in this loop and then ultimately i came to a resolution and how to actually explain this which is to admit the the challenge the impossibility of even that phrase right like telling to somebody to do that because everything is always shifting and the one mastering is also needing to be mastered and this goes in this infinite loop mm -hmm. but ultimately like recognizing that it it can give us freedom and then what we realize is that we're a proclivity you know we're just a proclivity based on conditioning based on the neural pathways that have been formed based on the upregulation and downregulation of our epigenetic triggers and all of these different things we're a proclivity but then you listen to someone who's like a in some ways a modern day mystic like dr joe dispenza and he's saying like yeah this thing called the placebo effect that we've shown can actually change things. Very real. Don't Very real, don't need a pill. We can actually access that ourselves and then start to, in, in his language, he wrote a book called the same thing, break the habit of being yourself, right? Like break through these patterns. And it's not easy, it's heavy right. sledding because these grooves are carved deep. Right. But you can with enough diligence. There's no fresh powder on those slopes. <laughs> no, no, exactly. You can, you, you can, you can with enough diligence and enough you know concerted effort and you know his method for those people who are familiar or unfamiliar he brings people to a deep meditative state and he's very you know he's a gifted guided meditate you know mm -hmm. meditation teacher i yeah, would say yeah. and then from there you start to manifest change from this place of what he will actually call the void and we've used that word before you enter the the blackness the void where you know you are no one and no thing at that point and from there you can bring in a new reality I've actually paired ketamine with his guidance and it's like really superpowering it. Now, all props to the meditative method and it can absolutely get you to all of these places. For sure. There is no place that meditation when mastered can't get you to. And I acknowledge that and I honor that path and I think it's a very sacred way. It's also very challenging. Very challenging way. But if you really wanna start making some hay, you know, so to speak, like allowing yourself to enter the void with some assistance, you know, because maybe you don't have the time to experience the meditation to that level because you need to be the change for a little right. bit first to be the one who would meditate but the the ketamine can actually really help with that and i've drawn in some change into my life into my health into real kind of interesting things where it felt like i was i had a golden thread to a possibility for myself and i enter the void and i get to wrap my hands around this golden thread and i pull a potential reality in towards me and i don't think i would have ever been able to really get my hands on that golden thread to pull that potential reality from the quantum mm -hmm. realm of all things that are possible without the help of ketamine it's a wonderful metaphor for wait for the experience I th and yeah you can ketamine is a an end I, so it, if ketamine allows us to press pause on the tape that's been running in our minds 
as another another metaphor um, and allow us to experience the void because the void can also be thought of as the absence of that narrative, right? right. So if you imagine you have this tape running in the back of our minds all the time that is who we've been taught to be. And then you have an opportunity, you press pause on that, you enter this void state that allows you to recognize all of the infinite possibilities that the unknown contains and what we could potentially do with that. And that could be really overwhelming for people at first when they've been running the same tape for decades or, you know, forever, forever, for as long as they can remember. MDMA and psilocybin in some ways and LSD and ayahuasca when used properly, when used, you know, with respect in a, in a careful therapeutic context, um, can especially can provide sort of, I would say almost another level. Ketamine can do it too. But the other metaphor to, to pausing the tape is also the metaphor of, uh, of the ski, the ski uh, runs that you were talking about earlier in that when you have a tape running over and over and over again, you're literally skiing off the same, skiing on the same runs over and over and over again, or, you know, and scraping more and more mm -hmm. snow off and tightening the groove and making those neural networks even stronger. And I think this is one of the most incredible insights that Eric Kandel lent to us, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering the origins of learning and memory, which date back not just through humans and not just through great apes, but through ancient sea snails that are 300 million years old. Hmm. And they are forming memories with their 12,000 neurons the same way that we're forming memories with our 100 billion neurons, right? And that's amazing. They're using even the same chemicals, the same neurotransmitters in slightly different ways, but the outcome is the same. And so the moral of that story is that Eric Kandel, you know, helped us understand is that practice makes perfect. You practice doing anything, you strengthen those neural networks sure. in all ways. You strengthen the way the neurons grow to connect, and then you strengthen the way they talk to each other. And all of that gets compounded over time. And that's for all things, things we consider bad, things we consider good, and things we consider neutral. All things get stronger in this way which is a really empowering idea because it allows you to recognize that if you, if you can understand that old habits aren't serving you, then you can equally understand that you can replace an old habit with a new habit, even though the old path is already carved and easier to follow, right? It's always easier to ski down the slope that is already been skied down. It's always easier to follow somebody else's tracks. It's harder and is a lot more, you know, energy intensive to ski down eight feet of fresh powder dropped on top of you, sure. which is what a lot of the psychedelic medicines are kind of similar to. You know, you're taking this medicine and then all of a sudden the same neural, same parts of your neural uh, pathways in your brain are active, but they're all free to talk to each other in any way they want. And then you have the opportunity to rewrite that path in that moment and then integrate it even further afterwards by pulling as much as you can from the sub your subconscious, as you said, like on the golden thread, right? You're you're, you have an opportunity to pull things that are aligned with your intention and your goals closer to you and then manifest those in your life, which is one of the definitions of the word psychedelic, which is mind manifesting. Mm. And psyche means mind and delos means to show. So it's to show us the mind that we weren't necessarily able to see all that mind going stuff going on beneath our awareness you look at that and then you can pull whatever it is you want closer to you, knowing that it's all always there. Yeah. And every time you do it, it gets a little easier. Right. The first track might be the hardest and having exactly. some support through these medicines to make those first tracks. But then 
you know, that's an important part of the integration practices, continuing to ski down those same tracks and make them a little right. deeper and make them a little deeper. And the longer you do that, eventually that can become this thing that you'll naturally fall into. And right. and that's the that's such an important thing for people to think about is the very first time you do something, it's gonna be the hardest. Every single time after that, it's gonna be easier. Your first cold plunge, the hardest one. And that's with every single thing. That's with every single, yeah, yeah, exactly. Every single thing is harder the first time. Yeah, so opening your heart, the very first time you really open your heart and really allow yourself to feel love, not just talk about love, not talk about desire, but feel love. All right, well, that may be the hardest to get to, but then once you're there, you can pattern that more and more mm -hmm. and love becomes easier and opening your heart can, becomes easier, forgiveness becomes easier, all of these things. You know, Don Miguel Ruiz says that practice makes the master mm -hmm. and with everything. For, for agreements. That's it, yeah, mm -hmm. and the mastery of love. And uh, it's, it's a really kind of empowering message to say that whatever you have going on, whatever you're experiencing, there's a deep challenge to get out of that groove, but you can. And once you do it, the first time's gonna be the hardest, but the next time will be a little easier, the next time will be a little easier, then all of a sudden, you're a different version of yourself because the patterns and your proclivities and your natural you know, baseline state is just gonna be in a different way. Right, and that's the whole goal. The whole point is that process. Yeah, It is to recognize that we've gotten to this point so that we can make an actual decision about is this, is this point where I wanna be, Yeah, right? Is, there's an entire section of our brain that is all of us that is dedicated to intro, introspection looking inside ourselves with a critical self-reflective eye, right? Self-inquiry. There's an entire part of a stripe in our insula called the middle insulate cortex that is dedicated to inquiry, self-inquiry. That means that we're supposed to be doing it, guys. Like we're supposed to be reappraising. <laughs> Same yeah. with empathy. And, yeah. and what's really fascinating is when you look at the neurobiology of how this, this emotional part of our brain evolved, which facilitates communal engagement and the building of all this crazy stuff around us and these complex societies, it can be, for the most part, localized to this insulate cortex and surrounding the middle insula where introspection, self-inquiry lies is the posterior insula, which is feeling our bodies. So feeling your heartbeat, feeling things touching your skin, the emotional context around that, feeling your lungs breathe and fill with air. Uh, being you know aware, body scanning, and just being aware of your body and its sensations and your internal organs. And then on the anterior side, which is called the anterior insula, is a section that is entirely responsible for empathy, feeling what others feel, mm. right? So if these parts, if we evolved, and you can trace the evolution back through all these different animals and, and see that, you know, as you follow monkeys, through their evolution that this part of the brain gradually expanded over time to serve the purpose of communality, it seems very clear that, that we all have the ability to do this. Mm -hmm. So if you don't use that ability, then, and we're not teaching people to use that ability, then in a, lar a lot of ways, we're missing the whole um, emotional component of the of this experience we're having. We're just, we, we're like, we're like handing the keys to the, to the, to the Maserati over to someone else, uh, the Maserati of our lives, and just being like, hey, you can drive. I'm just going to sit here with a blindfold on and let you take me wherever you want to go and not give you any instructions. Right. You know, and who and would it, do that with their fanciest <laughs> car, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, there's, you know, 
structures and entities that have taken advantage of the disempowerment of people exactly and they say oh you're broken you just got a broken brain and you get these chemical imbalance theories and all these things and you get these pills that you know from a prescription bottle that say okay you just take this for the rest of your life and you'll be good well that's starting to be exposed as not actually working and there's you know not to go down that whole rabbit hole but there's a lot of money made off the disempowering of people and allowing people to say i'm broken i have this broken thing i'll just get this solution like we're a computer that has a missing piece and you just plug this thing in but we're not we're we're like this amazing miraculous being that can really change and has the power to do it we just need the guidance right and 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 also that message of empowerment to do it and i think a lot of people have so much self-judgment that it's actually hard to receive that message because when you receive that message then you can say you mean i could have been doing this all along and then you have to look back at decades of your life where you were stuck in this other pattern and not believing you had the power and been like you mean i could have gone through my whole 20s and 30s when i was young and sexy and i could have had this same thing you're like no no no, i do not want to believe this reality right but the past is that also goes along with shame and guilt of course not doing it sooner yeah the past is gone yeah we have now we have now and forward from now and now and now and now and now and now right so like let let all that go like it's all good you didn't know you weren't ready you were doing your best like allow that to allow that to be the past and not try to bring it forward you know into this future reality like so what like literally so what yeah so what and let's learn from it yeah right like that's the i think the we focus a lot on the past as defining us going back to what we were talking a little bit about earlier we use we use it as an excuse to be who we are yeah that's not it's not an excuse it's a teacher it, it experience is a teacher so if we look at the past as an opportunity to learn from what we've done learn about what's serving us what's not serving us and then we can take little nuggets from that about and and to help us understand who we are and where we actually want to go right we can't change the past we can only change how we see it and we can't change the future we're actually notoriously terrible about <laughs> at predicting the future and, cha- and changing it in the way that we typically think about changing the future what we the only place that we actually have the ability to make any difference is in the present moment and so the reason why, and that's actually one of the reasons why I think psychedelic medicines and consciousness are the most fascinating is because they, when used in a safe environment, which is actually how we developed Apollo, it's the idea of curating safety. As a therapist, we are taught that the single most important thing is to hold space for someone. Holding space means to curate in a completely safe environment where that person feels comfortable being their most vulnerable parts of themselves, allowing the parts of themselves that are ashamed, that are wounded, that are guilty and sad and upset and frightened out when they don't feel comfortable doing that in any other part of their lives, yeah. right? And that safety in and of itself is healing. And you can do it just by looking somebody in the eye like we're doing right now mm-hmm. and acknowledging that you're listening to them and that they're heard, mm-hmm. you know? And so to be able to have a medicine like ketamine as one example that is legal right now that I can as a practitioner, call a pharmacy after screening you, send it to your home from the pharmacy and do sessions with you over Zoom when you have treatment-resistant PTSD and help you have a moment where you can feel safe enough in the comfort of your own home for maybe the first time ever and be able to go back to living your life through eyes of safety rather than constant fear. 
that could be one of the coolest things we've ever had access to in the entire history of psychiatry. There is nothing ever come out that like MDMA and ketamine and psilocybin that allows people to shift their sense of meaning that dramatically in such a short time, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible. It can't be understated. It can't or, be understated. Yeah, or overstated, I mean. But or, in, in, yeah, right. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I think either way, it makes yeah. the same thing. But yeah. when people have these you know, pessimistic views about the world, oh, it's all fucked up. And it's a, I'm like, but you're underestimating what's here and on the horizon to here. You know, right. right now here, ketamine is just becoming available and people don't really know that much about it. But this is a radical ally, you know, and then you have MDMA and psilocybin right on the horizon of legalization. Right. And you can't, you can't possibly like count out the power that this could bring to changing the world because changing the world involves changing the mind, changing the heart of people, allowing people to heal what formerly hasn't been healed. And when people change, the world changes. You can't just change the world because people will make the world back in the same way that their own mind mm -hmm. is oriented. But if you start changing minds at scale, and then all of a sudden the world will change to accommodate that because we'll make different choices, we'll have different policies, we'll vote in different leaders, everything starts to evolve. And this is, this is here and happening. And I think people who aren't aware and count out how powerful it is, of course you're pessimistic. But right. I think this is one of those things that allows me to remain an optimist because I've seen what it's done for my life and many other people's lives. And I just recognize like, okay, we're in a different, we have a different, you know, different set of tools that are available now to help reshape the world. And a different understanding of them, right? We have the yeah. ability to do epigenetic testing. We have the ability to do advanced neuroimaging and all the stuff that we just couldn't do before. You know, like back in the, in the 60s, back when we were originally using psychedelics to study, for example, with LSD in like the 50s, we didn't even know what DNA, we didn't really have a firm grasp on DNA, right? right. So now we have a very firm grasp on DNA to the point where we're actually using technology and computers to edit that DNA, right? It's a very different time. Yeah. And to think that there may be things that we can edit in our DNA, like the way that certain genes are turned on or off based on experience, like Joe Dispenza talks about being able to, you know, change the way that you think about yourself through meditation, which actually through experience itself is changing the way that our genes are upregulated or downregulated on the stress response side is basically what Rachel Yehuda showed in the lab at Yale and Sinai through studying Holocaust survivors and showed that this passes on to future generations. So you make the change in you, or we make the change in us rather, bring it back to the first person, and then that change not only affects us, it affects everyone around us who experiences and witnesses, is witness to that change, that transformation, and it affects our offspring mm. and our offspring's offspring, potentially for who knows how many generations, but at least four from the, from the animal studies, right. which is really incredible. Yeah, it's and really exciting. It's a completely new, and this is why it's challenging to, to integrate into Western medicine to some extent is because it is truly a paradigm shifting approach to mental health. It looks at mental health from a much more Eastern and tribal medicine model, which is, and well, I shouldn't say that. So it, it, it does look at it from that perspective, but it also looks at it from more of an ancient Western uh, Hippocratic 
perspective of medicine, right? Hippocrates is one of the founders, often looked at as the founder of Western medicine. He, we, t we all take as doctors the Hippocratic Oath when we're starting our training. And the Hippocratic Oath, the very first part of it is first do no harm, primum non nocere, and followed by many, many other things that are very important about preserving patient rights and making sure that people are autonomous in their own healing process. But a big, the biggest part of that is that the source of the healing, as Hippocrates taught and as East, traditional Eastern and tribal medicine practices teach, is that it comes from the individual. Yeah. Even in psychotherapy, completely, which is often unfortunately disconnected from the practice of psychiatry, it's taught that if the person doesn't make the decision and the choices to heal themselves, they're not going to get better. Mm. We cannot heal them. The role of the healer changes, right? And so if we are, as healers, making our clients or our patients dependent on us for the healing, dependent on a medicine they have to take every day, dependent on the system itself that they see as the source of their healing, it's literally externalizing the healing process outside of themselves, which is disempowering them to do it on their own. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It will not work. It will not be sustainable. And the whole point of all this practice that psychedelics don't start, but they amplify if used properly is that they, and MAPS teaches about this very, very well by this description of the inner healing intelligence that we all have built in us, this ability for radical self-inquiry and, and self-acceptance, and that we have the ability by nurturing ourselves to empower our own inner healer. And then when we empower our inner healer, through self-acceptance and self-love and self-gratitude and self-forgiveness and self-compassion, like is taught in many different traditions, all of a sudden that inner healer starts to actually heal us. Yeah. And then we start to become connected to it in a way where we can, we can show ourselves that we actually do have an ability to self-heal. That is what's going to change the future of all humanity, right? On this earth, because we cannot depend on someone or something outside of us to make us better. It leads to a constant, uh, a, a constant struggle to put more, take more in. Sure. Right. And then at the end, what do you, what are you left with? You just feel just as empty as you did when you started. And maybe or it was more empty or more empty Most because you've tried likely. so much stuff and it hasn't worked. And now you have all these side effects. Like you can't have orgasms anymore. And what yeah. the hell is the point of that? <laughs> right. It's yeah, totally. total purpose. <laughs> totally. You know, it's, it's uh, a lot of people think about, you know, pharmaceutical companies and they imagine and hypothesize a lot of manipulative people and Machiavellian things. And I don't really ascribe to that. But what I do understand is that any entity that you form starts to take on characteristics and it is guided by the people in the entity, but the entity itself has a prerogative. And in any entity, the, especially an entity as big as, you know, a major big pharma is the goal is to generate profits. Right. get as much profits as possible, distribute those people. profits. Yeah, distribute those profits to the people within the company, to the shareholders. That is its prerogative. And it is very easy to justify and turn a slight blind eye when you're motivated through confirmation bias to see the world and see what you're doing in a positive way, but really not take a look at the true motivation, which is to participate in what this entity wants to do anyways, which is to generate more profits and generate a higher right. share price, et cetera. The challenge is, is that the, these entities are so big and they have their tendrils in so many places. They're the number one donor to politicians. They're the top advertiser on big media. And so they fund is, medical education. 
yeah, medical, all of the different things. You know, they've kind of, they're, the tendrils are kind of everywhere. And this is a massive disruptor. This is a disruptive technology to a lot of these different models. So while I don't imagine that there's people out there like, we don't want people to heal, I don't think that's the case. No, I don't think so either. But there is inherently some resistance to this. This is not like everybody's be like, fuck, we can just get rid of half of our profile of medicines now that these new ones are out. Like, we don't need these things anymore. Like everybody, you have the power to heal. So we have to recognize that this movement is going to have to come almost grassroots. It's going to have to come from individuals like yourself. And there's many, many countless doctors I know who are fully on board. But getting this into, and the media has actually been pretty generous with it so far. And I've appreciated that. And politicians mm -hmm. have kind of stayed out of the way. And so far, so good. But I I do wonder, you know, at some point, I think there's going to be some resistance. Probably already is. And there actually has been for a while. Uh, but it's just, it's it's important to note that there are forces that be, you know, without intentional malice that are going to be opposing some of these different revolutions in psychiatry and mental health and personal empowerment. And so just to be aware that our energy in having these conversations and bringing this awareness and sharing this information is pretty essential for this to really thrive and proliferate in the way that it, the way that it can. Absolutely. It is so important and that, and I'm so glad that, to, you know, it's a pleasure to be here with you because you've had so many of these conversations with others and, sure. you know, like Michael Pollan and, and it's just been a big part of the, you've been a big part of, of bringing this narrative to the community, right? Which is so critical. And we talked to, we talked to Tim Ferriss, obviously has done a big part as yeah, well, absolutely. a huge part. Um, and just by having these vulnerable conversations and talking about your experiences that you've had when you're when you're in these places, it makes it less scary, right? It makes sure. it less new. And then that amygdala fires off just a little bit less, right? And thinking about those changes for pharmaceutical company business executives, right? These people have been trained and have been practicing the same kind of pharmaceutical business for their entire careers. They've been brought up in it. And all of a sudden you're saying, hey guys, we're gonna do things totally differently. <laughs> and it might disrupt your entire financial model. And by the way, you have a lot of shares in this company and your whole <laughs> yeah, financial totally. model might change, so get ready, right? And then their amygdala is like, ah! <laughs> <Right? laughs> For sure. Right, let's do whatever we can to not let that happen. Yeah. And it's not, about, it's not about necessarily malice, it's about a combination of ignorance, which is ignoring the opportunity, ignoring mm. the facts that are in front of us that create opportunities for newness, which is actually something we should embrace, rather than push away because it's coming anyway, Yeah, right? It's not, resistance is the root of all suffering as the, the Buddhists have said for many thousands of years. But there is a, there is a different side of it too that's really interesting as in a primarily addiction psychiatrist. You probably know this already, but er, the feeling of earning money activates the same part of our brain as doing a line of cocaine, right? <laughs> Yeah. So is it that surprising? Very Scarface. And and on top of that, the ability to earn money and feel like you are gaining something, just like doing a line of cocaine or anything that gives you an immediate high, is an instant gratification process. Right. Right. In nature, other than touch and empathic connection with a loved one, is there any such thing as instant? gratification 
or does everything mm. kind of take work? Yeah. Everything good really kind of takes a little bit of work. Sure. Even, even getting to those points of having soothing, intimate connections with other human beings requires investing yourself in a relationship and being vulnerable with that person and making sure that person feels safe or that animal like, the do like a dog or a cat that you want more closer to you in your life feels safe enough to, to hug you and be close to you, right? And it's not afraid. That requires work. Everything that's real, that is gratifying and rewarding, that is sustainable requires a little bit of work. So if you train, going back to Eric Kandel's understanding that practice makes perfect, you give somebody money, you teach them that instant gratification is real, you give them an understanding that that's what society values, and then you're telling, and then impulsivity breeds impulsivity. Impulsivity yeah. literally trains the brain to believe that impulsivity could be a good thing because it gets you more money. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you're caught in that loop, and that becomes what's familiar to you. So why would you deviate from that if that's where all of the rewards are coming from? It's a really, even though you might internally feel that, hey, what I'm doing may not be having the best impact on the world, right? The rest of society is saying, here's all the money that's saying what you're doing is having an impact on the world and you're getting rewarded for it, right? Like the Sackler family. I mean, look at what these people did. They lied to physicians by selling opiates, telling them that they're not addictive, um, you know, many, many doctors and nurses and healthcare providers died because they got addicted to the medicines that were sold by the pharmaceutical companies on top of patients. And now we have this terrible opioid epidemic that the Chinese warned about thousands of years ago was going to happen yeah. if we let opiates into our society unregulated in the way that we, or minimally regulated in the way that we did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you think of something like, you know, runner's high. Well, first you got to run. Right. get high right like you can't get runners high without running you have you to know? run a little bit <laughs> yeah, to get yeah, to get comfortable yeah. with the with the discomfort first right. of running and then you start to really get the runners high and then it but it works and it will reliably work and it will reliably improve same with cold plunging same with breath work same with meditating same with any of these different things it will reliably work the advantage that we have is these quick fixes these short-term thing a line of cocaine or continuing to earn money it's it fails at a certain point it fails to be pleasurable even opiates everything fails when you're trying to get these results that you didn't work for in some way because it's outside of what's actually real and natural and so and you can look at all the studies about extrinsic acquisition of different things it doesn't yield greater happiness it doesn't right. you know think of all the wealthy famous people that commit suicide like it it doesn't fix the problem nor does like you know, continuing to escalate a cocaine habit make you feel better. Right. You know, it might have been fun at first. Same with making money. It might fun at first. seem like it <laughs> yeah. makes you feel better, but it definitely <laughs> yeah. doesn't. And, and then but, the effect gets less and less every time. Yeah, over time, over time, over time. And I think that's the thing that's on, that's also like a, a reason for optimism is everything else is self-defeating. You know, these other things, they will eventually you cannot continue to feed the hungry ghost and the ghost gets full eventually it's like fuck cocaine did it like that was the solution or ah, oh, yeah i just made more money and i'm now i'm happy and now i'm fulfilled and now my life has purpose and meaning like it won't ultimately work so people are you know if they're paying attention at all and have the awareness of another model they'll they'll find the other way because of their suffering their suffering will increase to the point where they just can't handle it anymore Right. And they and they either burn out entirely or they shift course and go another way. And that's that's to the advantage of this, as Charles Eisenstein would say, this more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Is it's it's what will work.
sustainably. Yep, absolutely. If it's not sustainable, really, it's not worth doing. Ultimately, right. one of my one of my favorite songs of all time is uh, another you know another brick in the wall mm-hmm. by or the wall by Pink Floyd. Yeah, um, and you know that song left such an impact on me just hearing it as so many other i'm sure so many other people have in the idea that you know we should be questioning everything we're taught because just because we're taught it doesn't mean it's right it's just someone else's description or definition of the way things are and if we are taught just because we're taught that instant gratification feels good in the moment and you're not taught that that every shortcut has side effects right? That every shortcut adds risk to your equation. And if you actually put in the work, you can minimize the side effects, right? As an example, with cocaine, cocaine activates all these neurotransmitter systems in the brain. Those neurotransmitter systems are very similar to, if not the same as the neurotransmitter systems that would be activated if somebody gave you a hug that you liked, right? Mm -hmm. Probably not if you didn't like the person, but if you like the person, (laughs) then that will activate the same endorphins, the serotonin, the dopamine, the endogenous opioid receptor system, the endocannabinoid system. All of these systems get activated by soothing touch from a loved one. If you alienate all of your loved ones because you've stolen money from them to buy cocaine <laughs> or you've reneged on your on your uh, commitments to other people and you've built a foundation of distrust because you've been high for so long on whatever drug, it doesn't matter because you're seeking that instant reward, then you're ultimately suffering the side effects of taking that shortcut that manifests long-term. And it's really, a, it's, a, it's like a manifestation thing that you could literally predict from the moment that you take that first line or the moment that you can tell where this path goes. It's like kind of like The Matrix. I mean, I don't... Mm-hmm. The Matrix is a brilliant movie, by the way. Truly. I mean, those those guys really knew what was up. I think they're gals now. Is that right, Ryan? Oh. No way. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Learn something new every day. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, just in, like, in, yeah, the idea that you, you know, the idea that you can do that, you know, and, and that the, and that the, um, you know, that touch is the natural every that, that every shortcut that we think of in our lives has its own natural complement that just requires a little bit of work to make it sustainable right right and dispelling the myth of of instant gratification without risk of being a thing is really important for people to understand like i can't emphasize that enough this is one of the single biggest things we see all the time throughout all mental health care is helping people understand that particularly in the addiction world is that it's not instant gratification it's instant gratification with instant gratification with x amount of risk yeah and it's up to us if we if we care enough to think about it you know to say okay well how much risk am i actually taking on and it's x amount of risk compounding at x you know times time yeah yeah exactly like it's going to get it's going to escalate always without a doubt without a doubt and this is so this actually leads to you know one thing that is the caveat for any of these medicines is doing it in the way that you know your protocols offer people really allowing introspection repatterning asking the right questions doing it in in kind of a ceremonial yet therapeutic context it's like right? a western modern ceremony right yeah. exactly this yields reliable consistent positive results but if someone is in a consistent amount of pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, even potentially physical pain caused from inflammation, caused from sure. a poor diet, whatever, 
ketamine can disassociate you from that pain. And so if you're doing it in, a, in this context that we were mentioning prior, the Western ceremonial therapeutic model, it can actually help you reprogram that pain for good. But you can also just take a couple squirts all the time and just kind of numb yourself out. And so you can use ketamine in a way that is actually the antithesis of what its true highest potential really is because you can use it just the same way that you would use you know, a bottle of wine or yeah. one of these other intoxicants that numb the pain, mm -hmm. so to speak. And I think that's you know this important caveat to share is that it's not like just because you're doing using ketamine to do the same thing that alcohol once did that all of a sudden it's better i mean maybe it is for your liver or something like that but nonetheless it's still but the less same. for your bladder yeah yeah <laughs> right. it's still the same energy yeah yeah absolutely i think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about addiction also is that and carl hart talks about this from columbia who's an amazing uh addiction researcher who did some of the original research on using ketamine therapeutically to treat cocaine addiction which is really interesting and um it's you can use the exact same substance in different ways and get the opposite results, right? The exact yeah. same substance used with different, just to phrase a different way, with different intention can get you completely opposing results. So with the example of ketamine, which is a really important one right now in the space, there are a lot of people who deliver ketamine as an IV administration or an intramuscular injection or as a nasal spray that you take home as a prescription that don't have any psychotherapy associated with it at all. And those people often are the people who can have good results, but they also are the people who are at most risk of escapism through the medicine, mm -hmm. see, using the medicine to escape from their pain, to escape from their suffering. Um, and they're the people who are most likely to have side effects from the use of the medicine in that way because they require usually more doses more frequently and higher doses over time. Because, remember folks, there is no escape, hmm. right? There's no escape from this. Like we're all in this together. We're here for when we're here, the time we're here. And we might as well make the most of it because there is no escape. There's only engage. And when you use ketamine with the intention to escape, or any medicine for that matter, you will build tolerance. You will make yourself more likely to disempower your own healing process because you just always find yourself back where you started when the medicine wears off, right? right. And that might be two weeks to start with ketamine, but then over time, it could become every three days you feel like you need another infusion or you need another, or every day you need another spritz, right? And, yeah. and that is not consistent with the healing process that these medicines represent. The beauty and the miraculousness of these kinds of medicines like ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin is that you can take one dose or a few doses spread out over months not with continuous use, with the goal of having a, a time-limited experience of where you take, you know, anywhere, I guess the, the best way to think about it would be like three to 12 doses. Every dose is focused on engaging in your life, engaging in your pain. As the, as the uh, famous Buddhist monk Milarepa said, you put your head in the mouth of the beast. The beast mm -hmm. represents your greatest fears. And you say, eat me if you will. <laughs> and the beast disappears, right? <laughs> because it's just you. Yep. And you can 
do we can all do that at any time. If we run from that beast, if we avoid it, if we try to escape from it, the image of the beast just gets bigger and scarier and the teeth get sharper and more frightening, right? Because we haven't actually just addressed it and, and faced it head on and said, hey, I know this is, I know that you're there. I acknowledge you. Just another part of me. I know you're an afraid part of me. Don't worry. You're safe right now. Let's talk it out, right? Yeah. Let's look at let's look each other in the eye. Let's let's you know you, have to, you know put your putting your head in the mouth of the beast is a nice metaphor, but it's like let's look each other in the eye. Let's acknowledge each other that we exist. That you're part of me. I'm part of you. Let's figure out a way to get through this together. Yeah. Because if I ignore you, you're just gonna get really pissed off at me. As if a friend that was trying to get your attention was ignored, and you know they probably get pretty pissed off at you, right? Or you would at them if you're trying to like, hey, hey, bud, I'm a little uh, uncomfortable right now. I'm a little upset. I'm a little anxious. Like, can we talk? you're like, no, nah. <laughs> right? Get out of here. And after a little while, like, get pretty annoyed. Yeah, yeah. And those knocks get louder. Yeah, you're feeding this, you're feeding this phantom monster, you know, and the more that you, more that you turn away, the more that the phantom, the more that you won't look under the bed, the more that there's something terrifying under the bed. Exactly. Until like it gets, it gets too horrifying to even, even stand. And there's a couple things I want to talk about is, you know, as an addiction psychiatrist, I'm sure you're, you're the most well-versed on the ways that the addiction mind works in which there's so many slippery ways that you'll be able to justify something. How oh, well, you know, I'm taking the spritz every day because, you know, my life is super stressful right now and mm -hmm. there's this thing going on and this thing going on. Well, guess what? You're, you will manufacture those stressful things to give you the justification that you need to do the spritz every day. Mm -hmm. And so the stressful things will never end because you will actually put obstacles in your past so that you can justify you getting your fix of the thing that you're addicted to, right? And Absolutely. that's like this slippery way that the mind works. Like, well, shit, just I, eventually this is gonna end, but it's not because you're gonna create the thing that allows you to get your addictive fix. Isn't it a wonderful paradox of how that's <laughs> like, if, because you wanna believe that your, that your mind and your body are conspiring to heal you, that's what we're trying to teach people. And then at the same time, people's, people are in a state where, especially if you're addicted to anything that you perceive is gonna give you risk-free instant gratification then, or numbness from your pain or what have you, then your mind is trained to work against you. So how can you trust? right? How can you trust in the healing process when you've already disempowered yourself to, or you've been disempowered rather, based on what you've been taught to believe that your, your body and your mind are going to do whatever they can to get that thing. And that's a very real experience. It is absolutely, absolutely real. And it is really important that that, that is exactly why I brought up earlier that idea of, of dispel the myth, right? Mm -hmm. Recognize that certain things about the way we see the world and the way we've been taught to see the world may not actually be serving us. The idea that instant gratification is real is a, is a fallacy. It does not exist. There is literally no such thing as instant gratification. Yeah. Instant gratification is a shortcut to suffering, right? <laughs> like that's how we should reframe it. That's rewriting your narrative, yeah. right? And we've, and we've all been addicted in the way that you described, to stuff. There's, you know, whether it's sure. a video game or whether it's working out or whether it's cigarettes or whether it's making money, making money or, or you know, social interactions with certain kinds of people or whatever it might be, there are always things that we seek in that way. And the goal is that those things should be enriching 
to our lives and that we should feel better about ourselves after and more fulfilled after the experience is over and feel like we can grow from that experience, not feel more numb or feel more in pain or feel more upset so that we need more stuff to make ourselves feel less upset again, right? Yeah. Like it's if that's the cycle, if that's the ride you find yourself on, get off as quickly as you can, Yeah. right? The, Which is no easy thing. It's not easy. It's not, that's it why we exist. But it is possible. Right? It yeah. is possible and you can, and people can do it on their own. They can do it with help and they, but I think the, and, and psychedelic medicines, particularly ones like psilocybin, ketamine, ibogaine have a very, very big role to play in helping people Ooh, reset the brain. Ibogaine is a, that's a big one. Well, that's because, the one that's most popular for opioid addiction. Yeah. Cause Ibogaine is not going to let you, it's not going to let you out. <laughs> like, like in my experience with Ibogaine, I've done it, they've done it, uh, two flood doses and then a couple kind of smaller doses of it but when you're in the flood dose of an ibogaine you know treatment session and i did it in more of the psycho spiritual model less yeah. than the medical model with uh you know Bwiti elders and oh, that must have been an amazing experience it was sure it was unbelievable yeah. unbelievable and i you know i told that story first on joe rogan's experience actually the painting behind your head was someone who cured his name's gore boogie and he cured his heroin addiction after listening to that podcast on joe rogan using uh, using a boga came Not back painted that painting and then i went out and met him at maps like years later wow. and he's like hey you know this painting is up for auction to maps but i want to tell you the story behind it and i was like wow so I, of course i bought it it's amazing it's amazing but the thing about it is and ayahuasca will do this too is it'll pin you it'll pin you down to your shit where you can't you can't escape it right and that's like i think the beauty of some of these some of these medicines especially ayahuasca and aboga and psilocybin can do it in certain ways too it can but when you have agency you can squirm you can squirm around all this stuff like good luck squirming around what aboga is trying to show you like it is just relentless it's got you for 24 hours right, it's like right. i got yeah. time on yeah. my side baby it's like that rolling stones song just yeah. like time you know and it's just got you and you're like fine i get it you know yeah. like i see yeah. it and it's like yeah and it's okay and, and you get the messages and i think that's one of the powerful things that ibogaine can do is not only does it provide this reset physiologically but psychologically you are going to look at the cause of your addiction why you're addicted what's going on where it's coming from where that shame originates where, from, exactly right? where that shame is from where the shortcuts you've taken and it's going to show it to you until you're just like i see it i see it all i've looked in every different orifice that this shame monster has yeah and like i know it and, and you can't deny it anymore. and you can't deny it anymore right. and that's the that's the beautiful aspect of uh of these kind of longer term really potent medicines they're not for everybody obviously and it's it's a very it can be a very challenging experience and typically is in both of these i mean i i can't recall a physically more difficult experience than iboga that's what i've heard it's I've heard i mean it's the it's, most challenging it's impossibly physically physically uncomfortable yeah like indescribably physically uncomfortable i remember the second time it's so it was so like psychologically illuminating and healing that the way i remembered it was 
psychologically illuminating and healing and then i did it the second time and i was like you got to be kidding yeah. me i thought what, did, this? <laughs> what did i do did i forget did i forget the primary sensation which is absolute misery right you know like moving around one inch to another inch to get some bit of relief from the relentless nausea and buzzing in your ears and flush and your heart rates at a hundred because it's actually a stimulant psychedelic so you're like just in right. this fucking thing listening to the jaw harp at a million miles an hour just because that's the only thing that can calm you down is music that's faster than you're actually mm. racing and it's this but it's this wild wild beautiful experience ultimately and you know i think when you look at all of the things everything has its place you know and uh i think even something like you know even something like a boga i've heard people who can microdose it in such a way that it can become less therapeutic and more like oh this is something that's like my new stimulant like this is my new adderall right, right. and it's almost impossible to think about something as powerful as a boga doing that but it goes to the point that any single thing can be used with the wrong intent to get a result that's not valuable now i haven't particularly heard of ayahuasca being used that way other than potentially some escapism where people are like oh i'm more comfortable in this world than i am in my own physical world and it can certainly but i don't hear of like nobody brings a little bit of ayahuasca to a party or something like that well uh, not like that but there are shamanic traditions that do i think amazonian several amazonian traditions where the shamans microdose uh microdose like basic what i mean by that is like sub threshold so you mm -hmm. it's like just at the threshold of awareness that you notice anything and they will microdose ayahuasca which is really interesting or the components of ayahuasca separately yeah. and then sometimes they'll microdose them mixed together in the brew well microdosing can be productive of course right you know and it, with the right intention what i would i guess what i would say is it's i've not i've rarely seen ayahuasca be used for other than malicious intent from the provider which certainly exists you know right. shamans who take advantage of people under the medicine and take advantage of their agency over those individuals that certainly that's happens. a very real thing yeah but like uh it's maybe one of the few exceptions to um people using it just for pleasure or for instant gratification it does it seems to be one of the most resistant to that and i'm not saying it's not possible anything is possible yeah. with everything but i think it is generally a universal rule that any medicine any drug can be used properly and improperly right and uh, ayahuasca just tends to be i think the most resistant to that because it's it just doesn't really work that way yeah <laughs> I, I, I generally i would agree with you although i i do know some some people who i've i have had the pleasure of knowing who you know will tell you that they've done 300 plus ceremonies in two years and they're of, with ayahuasca and and they're still not feeling good and yeah and then you have to have a different conversation right yeah like what are they running what are they running from so right. ultimately ultimately then the rule is universal that there is no thing There's out there basically no thing that is not abusable yeah right and actually that is a great great segue because the the uh, when I, I went in 2018 to study a little bit with the Shipibo people in Peru mm -hmm. and to understand their ayahuasca traditions because ayahuasca in their tradition has been used to heal trauma and I'm a trauma psychiatrist and I was like I want to see what they're doing right mm -hmm. why is how is this similar and different to what we do um, and it was very similar in a lot of ways but one thing that was that was really I mean there were so many fascinating things about what they do but they but they call they still they even call it trauma 
right? They, what they're working on with the medicine, it, they, they call it trauma and they have this way of, of cultivating experience that is just so, uh, it's so safe and so the same kind of safety that we do. It's, it was like so familiar. Do you know what mm. I mean? It's like the same sure. kind of safety that you experience in the best therapy session you've ever had, right? Yeah. And and it's just, you know, you, you you feel like any part of you that is guilty or ashamed or vulnerable is not judged. It's just a part of you and it can come out and it's allowed to be there just as much as the other parts of you are. And it's safe there just as much as the other parts of you are. And maybe that that ego protective survival part that's been driving the bus for so long it's actually okay for that part to take a back seat for a little while sure. and let let the child part of you drive or let the emotional and em, em, empathic sensitive part of you drive and and the role of the of the interaction between that curated safe experience and and the the administration of the medicine in that container as we call it safe container and the songs that come to the shamans who are singing to the participants is really it's it's a really incredible thing i mean it's something like we that that is very it's it's familiar and foreign at the same time mm. right and and the experience of of that for people is so powerful to be able to help help them just kind of you know dislodge some of the stuff that's been stuck yeah. for a while really it's it it's almost like christ energy in a way and and i say that because the energy of christ that i've experienced is that you can show your very worst and there won't even be a flinch like not even a flinch like right. this is my worst and the christ energy is like i love you right you know radical like, non-judgment radical non-judgment right yeah. and, and in in a way in the ayahuasca shamans it's like they've you know that they've seen like the most intense exorcisms of the darkest thing and they look at it and they're just going to keep singing their song and right. they're not going to judge it like they can you have the feeling that they can peer inside your energy body and almost like they can they have access to all of your darkness because it's on display in your own psyche and you just have the sense that when they're over you singing their bentiadas that they're very aware of that mm -hmm. and they don't flinch like they don't flinch the song they're not like whoa stay away from this one <laughs> you know right. like like right. they don't pattern any of that and and i think that's the same way in the therapeutic model it's like whatever's coming up it's like it's all good like we're we've seen it before we're not going to judge you and that place of non-judgment is so different than the world because the world is just judgment everywhere 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 right. <laughs> judging what you look like what you say what you did what you have done you know you can get canceled for something you did 20 years ago that may you may or may not have done like the world is like judgment is at the almost like the peak right uh, that i've ever seen it be and sure some people have done some bad things and i'm not saying that you people should avoid consequences for these bad things and some of this is helpful and some of this is but nonetheless like in our world there's just judgment everywhere so to go to a place where there is no judgment and that doesn't have to be a ceremony it doesn't have to be a therapy sure. session in you know the fit for service fellowship that i lead we'll go through these vulnerability and in different men's group circles you go through these vulnerability things where people hold that type of space without any medicines well sometimes breath or something like that but 
it's so valuable. It's so valuable because then as you look at the external world not judging you or look at the shaman or look at the you know, therapist not judging you, then you can learn to not judge yourself. Exactly. And then that changes the whole fucking game. Yep, that's exactly right. And that is the part that we have control over, right? When you think about what causes anxiety, what causes anxiety is thinking and spending the limited precious time we have every day thinking about things we don't have control over. Right. And then we feel, which is most things, by the way, and then we <laughs> feel out of control more of the time, which makes us feel really upset because we don't like uncertainty, right? We like to know. Even though we don't know most of what's going on around us, we like to know. Yeah, we're scrambling to know at all right. costs. We're trying. Even we'll though, even create yeah. all these fictions about what we think we know just because it's more comfortable. Even if the reality of what we think we know is horrible, we're like, fuck it, I'll take it. Right. Because at least I know it. You know, I've watched myself do that. Yeah, we all do. You know, I hypothesize this person's not texting me, you know, for whatever length of time. I must have said something, must not like me and whatever reason. Right. And then they'll like hit you up and be like, Hey man, sorry, I was fucking out this. And you're like, oh God, why didn't I just say like, I don't know. Yeah. But instead I created this whole fiction of them not, and now I, I do that less because I caught myself doing this so many times. I mean, shit, it was so bad And for you realize me. it makes you feel like crap, right? Of and then course. you're like, why am I doing this? But you actually had the thought to question that behavior. There are lots of people who don't. There are lots of people who just assume that that, that, that is what's happening, right? That this person isn't texting them back because they're upset at them or they said something wrong or what have you. Then the worst thing they do is they send more messages and they're like, <laughs> they're like, you know. And then like, all of a sudden they create the reality that and they're, they, they're afraid of. That's exactly it. You literally manifest the reality yeah. that you, that you, that you act on right if yeah. you and so taking time the the single biggest judge there as you said right the world is full of judgment the world is full of people judging other people our brains are judgment machines literally we're detecting contrast from one thing to another self and other table and chair right <laughs> like air and not air right <laughs> like we're like we are contrast machines like the colors of this thing in front of us is cool and the shapes because they contrast with each other right right that contrast is literally the beauty of life you can't get rid of judgment all you can do is reserve it yeah. you can you can say okay i acknowledge that this thing's happening but Maybe I could admit that I don't know whether it's good or bad. And then we resume. I, I, I don't know that this person, I know this person's not texting me back. I don't know whether it's good or bad. Let's give it a little time and see what happens, mm. right? And, and let's reserve judgment and then allow everything to unfold as it will. That, that, is, the, that is the fundamental practice of self-compassion or patience that allows everything to keep to keep moving in the way that, that we want it to. And that is something within our control, right? We can't control what other people think about us. Fundamentally, we can't control what other people think about us. All we can control is what we think about ourselves. So if, you can, if we can practice that, it's just practice. Practice makes perfect. If you practice thinking about what other people think about you, you get really good at making a lot of mistakes, assuming what other people think about you that you know. And we don't don't know yeah. don't know shit about what other people think about us <laughs> usually what people think about us is a reflection of what they think about themselves almost always almost always yeah we're always just a we're a, we're a projection 
we're very few people really really see us they see us as they want to see us as as we fit and fit into their reality tunnel and you can get closer and closer to gnosis with the person and that's the intimacy right into me see right that, like that's a beautiful thing when you get there when you feel really really seen it's one of the most beautiful experiences available because then you don't feel alone anymore but people don't know shit about you they don't right. they don't they don't even really see you for the most part so this person like so being mindful of that just bringing in that awareness to just say like all right i don't really know what they're thinking and they also they don't really know me either so just hold it lightly i think is really like that important thing and with all this judgment to reduce it to a simple preference rather than anything like we'll never i don't think we're able to escape preference i mean it's a a mystical idea of like reducing preference but ultimately if your preference is like yeah i i prefer the chocolate to the vanilla today you know and like i would prefer if this person texted me back today or, or not but it's like chocolate it's like whatever i value that and and if you can just make it soft and then honor the fact that you have it rather than pretend that you don't care which is some form of tricking yourself into spiritual bypass. It's okay to care. Exactly, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. it's okay to care. You say, like, oh, yeah, my preference would have been a different thing. But but just hold that lightly, not just build so much on top of it. Just acknowledge your preference and then move on. But, you know, there's so many different ways that you can go extreme one way or the other. Either I have no preference and whatever it is is supposed to be and blah, 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 I don't care. And then you're just stuffing mm -hmm. your true feelings and bypassing them. Right. Or you're fabricating some big thing and making it a big deal and then ultimately becomes a big deal, you know? So, but just just kind of being like, all right, here it is. It's just just hold it, hold it loosely, like hold the reins loosely. Yeah. And there's and and on top of that, there's also a lot of there in those kinds of situations, right? Thinking about what other people think about us, we we can't possibly know and we don't have control over and we don't understand necessarily what they think about us, which is why it causes anxiety, right? And that's why it causes uncertainty. Uh, or the, I'm sorry, the uncertainty is what causes the anxiety that we feel, the restlessness and the discomfort of not knowing what could be going on. And so we can easily get trapped in that loop. We all do. And then the, the ultimate fix to that is to remember that or my favorite fix to that is to remember that you know we all have a hell of a lot more in common than we do different we're all human before we're anything else right literally all of us and if you want to extend that to animals we're all alive before we're anything else right right we all have the same four letter dna before we are anything else and that's really important because when you think about that and you know with respect to animals as well most of them but also humans, actually I would say all animals and humans, we all have the same primal urges for survival, right? We all need food, water, air, and shelter, and companionship and, and connection with others, right? So typically when someone's not texting, texting us back, it's usually because they're trying to fulfill one of those core five human needs <laughs> that we also spend most of our time trying to fulfill, yeah, for right? Sure. And so you can pretty much, like from, those, from that basic understanding, that we are more similar than we are different, but our brains are contrast generation machines or contrast detection machines that generate beauty out of out of differences, right? Then you you can kind of prevent the mind that from going down one of those paths of self-criticism and self-judgment in those kinds of situations and redirect it to a path of, okay, this person's probably busy trying to fulfill their regular daily life needs mm -hmm. and I'll let them do that and then we'll... You know, if they text me back, it was meant to be. If they don't, it wasn't. Yeah. 
otherwise and you can also get in a trap you can become too sensitive to other people's concern about this right like right. on my phone i have literally uh, like over a thousand unread text messages and that's accumulated over <laughs> time that's a lot it's a lot yeah i, I mean mine I'll, was I'll, bad. Pull it I'll get i'll get my number here right here right now it is at a thousand ninety holy cow right <laughs> and that and fundamentally it's i can't i can't get I, i'm just i can't but i still sometimes feel compelled to like oh fuck this is this person's thing and this person's thing also by the way if you have a hundred friends you're gonna have two birthdays a week like that's unsustainable yeah it's absolutely unsustainable so sometimes you're gonna have to say no to the birthday party and no to the this is a housewarming thing and, and how do you even remember all those birthdays <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> i can't so just get birthdays. fucking invites you know yeah. and it's it's really interesting and, and i think you have to not get too caught up in worrying about what they're going to perceive about you not showing up and just say like express as honestly as possible it's difficult because a lot of times it's like yeah i'll be there even though you know you're not and then that creates this false expectation and then they do have a genuine gripe about it but if you just express honestly and honor yourself people will start to they'll start to know you and they'll start to trust you and they'll start to understand that all right aubrey's just doing the aubrey thing and it doesn't mean he doesn't love me and you're doing your thing and it doesn't mean you don't love me and that's not to say that even though i do this same thing and i'm promoting this that certain people won't hit me back and i'll be right. like fuck man i thought we were closer than this you know and then of course inevitably like they do hit me back and it's all good but it's just this natural human thing i would i would just caution people to even though we understand that people might be in temporary anxiety about this thing you can still it's still essential to honor yourself just honor yourself express your truth allow them to give them the gift of the opportunity to do the work to see you as you are because mm -hmm. that'll help them see themselves as they are and that'll give them permission to say no to the infinite birthdays that come <laughs> you know infinite, that are, yeah, yeah, yeah i mean it's, birthdays, it becomes yeah. it just extends the more people you have the more events yep. that you're invited to and you have to get comfortable with is this right for me what is my sacred want what do i really want Can't do and then everything. and you want friends who want you to do what you want that's what you want and if everybody can just get to that place Oh, mm -hmm. that anxiety can just drop and like all right i'm gonna do what i want today you know and that doesn't mean that sometimes if someone really needs you all right show up you know great like be kind as much as you can yeah but but really you have to be kind to yourself too absolutely and that's essential and i was just giving myself a nice lecture for myself of course <laughs> which is pretty much the secret of everything that i say if anybody wants to know why i'm promoting all this is because i'm talking to myself everyone <laughs> I have, I have not espoused a single bit of wisdom that i'm not actually preaching directly to myself and this is one of those examples do we all i mean amen right we all kind of do that in our own way hopefully most yeah. of us if we're being true to ourselves in our speech which we would i would hope we all try to do as much as we can but uh yeah to that point i think one of the one of the things that we are really missing in our society right now is touch right we are missing especially because of covid i mean things were we were already not touching each other and right. ourselves enough before covid and then covid happened and you know speaking of this idea between balancing newness and from newness and oldness or familiarity and unfamiliarity and this contrast it's as touch is like one of our most fundamentally important neuroconnective or, or neurological pathways that sends that safety signal to the brain that says i'm not in, under threat right now right yeah. i am not running from a lion right now because i have time 
to pay attention to this feeling of someone right. touching me nicely. Right. And that's really, really important. Or the feeling of me putting my pressure on my own chest, right? Or, or touching my, rubbing the inside of my palm in a nice soothing way. That is a signal to us that we are in control, that we are in control of how we feel and we're in control of our own sense of, of perceived safety, even if we can't necessarily be in control of our global existential safety because we don't know, and it's so confusing and vast, we can at least know that we're in control of how we feel right now in this moment, yeah. right? Bringing everything kind of back to the present. And that is what's so, and that was really inspirational to me in therapy and learning MDMA assisted psychotherapy from Mike and Annie Mithoffer, just taking it full circle, and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy from Phil Wolfson, because as a psychiatrist, we I know this might surprise a lot of people, but we are taught, and even as therapists, pretty much, psychotherapists, we're taught not to touch patients. We don't touch our patients, right? We make eye-to-eye -eye contact with them, and we look at them, we gaze at them lovingly, <laughs> you know, and we make sure that they feel heard and listened to, but we don't touch them. And yet when you do the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training and you do the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training, touch is a fundamental part. Body work is a fundamental part when somebody is experiencing distress or feeling unsafe, even with the drug on board that's supposed to make them feel extra safe, they can still feel unsafe when they're reliving or going through past traumatic experiences. And we are taught how to physically, of course, with their permission and consent, work with them in a non-sexual intimate way that helps to soothe them and calm their bodies and calm and and basically center the mind back into the body so that they can be present with their physical yeah. whole selves again and and that training was the most inspirational thing that led us to develop apollo because not everybody can get psychedelics right it's like like pregnant women children people who are very very seriously ill uh, people who have bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, they are not good candidates for psychedelic medicine. And they oftentimes don't have enough people around them touching them right. in their lives. So you give them something that they can take out into their own lives, like a device that vibrates gently on their body and gives them that sense of feeling like, oh, just like touch, if I can pay attention to this feeling of a soothing vibration right now, I can't possibly be running from a lion. Right. And then you center mind back into body and you can make a decision from a standpoint of strength instead of a standpoint of fear. And for those those people who don't know what the Apollo is, is it's like, it looks kind of like an Apple watch, so without a face, something yeah. like that. And uh, and you put it on and show it has this, I wear it all the yeah, time. And it has this, these different programs that you can do that are, that are very like soothing in the way that they kind of it's almost like the vibrations feel almost warm even though they're just not it's not temperature regulated it's like this yeah. this warmth of like here i am like i got you yeah and that's like, just kind of like what it's saying all the time like i got you or it's like hey like wake up a little bit you know the pulses go a little faster like all right. right let's uh let's get a little movement going here buddy you know and it, it becomes this kind of it's kind of like a beautiful little ally that you can that you can have when you don't have someone to like rub your shoulders and give you a little shake like come on man let's get let's get it going here or right. hey it's all good like set on, like calm down a little bit right or if you haven't mastered breath work and you're right. going into a, a ketamine experience for the first time and you haven't mastered breath work and you're like i have no idea what's coming this is really anxiety provoking my heart rate's going up and and people use this going into those experiences thinking about the future of the way wearable technology could complement altered state 
of consciousness healing experiences, especially when we're doing them more remotely, is this has been an, an invaluable tool to be able to provide ketamine safely to people at home. Yeah, because you can't touch I them. can't touch them. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. I can't reach through the monitor, <laughs> but I can, you know, teach them how to use this so that they can activate it on their own. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I think, better than me touching them because they're in control. Eh, questionable. It's questionable, right? There's benefits of both. Right. Benefits of both. But the point is that it has the added benefit of the empowerment factor. Sure. Where they can they're the in control of it at any yeah. time. Mm -hmm. And and that is really important, right? The idea that you're in control of how you feel. The way that even in an experience where your mind is in another universe or another plane, you're still in control of how you feel. That's why we teach breath work, yep. right? That's why we teach self-touch techniques. So it's a really interesting time to think about the future of, you know, what are these experiences going to be like for people? What if technology like this, you know, one of the things that we hope to explore in the future is how could this complement the ability to scale psilocybin and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy at home, right? Those therapies cost eight to $14,000 per person to yeah. go through one course. But if you could figure out a way to help people be more empowered and safe in their own skin when they haven't felt safe in their skin in decades. And then to be able to have this experience more easily without going into a clinic and requiring the dozens and dozens and dozens of hours from two therapists and all of this extra prep and sleeping over because they can't stay in their own house and blah, 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 right? Then you gradually check off little ways you can cut costs and make this more accessible to people. Yeah. For people who are interested in... in working with you in particular because this is going to be a question that's going to come up um how would they because there's not a lot of people who are doing what you're doing out there there's clinics that are that are opening some just yeah. give you a shot walk out the room like how was it you right. know or, and then there's some that's that like are, 90 percent of ketamine that's that's way. mostly what's going on right now but there's other ones that are developing and working on different models but i haven't heard of anybody who's doing what you're doing which is empowering people to through utilization of technology the technology of the Apollo, the technology of Zoom and these different other formats, being able to guide people through an experience. And if this is appealing to somebody, what are the what are what can you offer? Is it state based at this point? And what's your what's your idea for expansion so that you can help bring this out to the world? So so the first answer to the first question is you can if you want to find me or access to my our type of treatment, you can just go to drdave.io and you can reach out to us through the website and you can learn all about the kind of therapy we do. And we do 10 plus different kinds of psychotherapy. They're up from traditional Western to other techniques to medicine assisted to technology assisted to, uh, you know, things without medicine at all. And um, that that's the way to get in touch with us about this kind of stuff. And if we can't, if we figure out that, you know, we're not the best fit for you, we'll find someone else who can help as well. Mm -hmm. um, so please feel free to reach out. Um, the other side of it is the, the scaling is really complicated, right? Because these techniques are not that easy to teach, but right. they're also not taught in the traditional programs and you need clinical experience to be good at them. Like you need mentorship. And that's one of the biggest things that we've lost in, it hasn't, it's not lost in medicine, it's just changed, but it's been lost in a lot of other areas of, of, um, self-development and professions where there you don't apprentice anymore right there's right. not like an opportunity to i mean to to apprentice in lots of positions where that would be really useful to get good by learning from the master right right and so interestingly thanks to 
Phil Wolfson teaching me how to do ketamine, teleketamine assisted psychotherapy with people at in their own homes over Zoom, um, I realized that this was an opportunity to train others to do this too more easily. And so we actually started a training program through uh, a nonprofit that I work with called the Board of Medicine, which is a group of West, mostly Western uh, medical providers who are world-renowned experts across all different fields, but also Eastern and, and Tibetan Buddhist uh, experts and nutrition experts and really trying to bridge the gaps between uh, Eastern and Western medicine and, you know, long-term tribal as well. And the training program is small right now. We have a wait list. It's just starting, but the opportunity is to be able for, to have us and our, and our team mentor you where you start out the same way we did when we were learning how to do CBT or psychodynamic psychotherapy, where mm -hmm. you join in to a session, you're part of the therapeutic dyad with me or with one of my, uh, with one of my colleagues, and, and then you watch, right? And then you do intakes, you screen patients, and then you watch the therapy sessions with medicine and without. And then after you start to get a little more comfortable seeing a few, you participate in them and you talk more and we always encourage a little bit of participation, but you know, if you really don't know what to say, it's okay. Just watch. Yeah. You watch. See, it's, it, we have this phrase: "It's see one, do one, teach one." Right. Mm -hmm. It's usually a little more than one, but that's that's how we do it. And so you you watch, then you participate, then you lead your own sessions with us doing more of the watching, and then you teach others. And now that we can do it over Zoom, in theory, as long as the clients are cool with it, you could have like twenty people watching. Right. right? You're not gonna have them all participate. But if they're okay with it, or if you, you know, say, hey, you can have a discount if you, you know, allow us or, or participate for free, if you allow us to teach others how to do this treatment sure. from your work, then it creates this really unique learning opportunity from virtual care that we couldn't easily do before. And so I'm hopeful that in the future, being able to do these techniques virtually will allow us to expand it and scale it much more rapidly. And I hope more, you know, this is not proprietary to us, guys. If if anyone else yeah. can does ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, consider consider mentoring people and teaching them how to do it because I can't tell you, you know, I have like, I have like 30 people waiting to, to, to be mentored into how to do this. And I'm only one guy, you know, sure. we could use other people to help. I know, I don't know if you know, you know, Dan Engel, right? Of course. I yeah. Dan, we're yeah. Close, close brothers for yeah. over, over a decade. Dan's amazing. And he, and he does some, uh, he does ketamine assisted psychotherapy as well. And also I believe does some mentorship, but it's, it's doing things like that where we, remember that teaching others how to do what we know how to do is part of doing what we do. Absolutely. It's not just an afterthought. It is a core part of it because if if we, God forbid, get hit by a bus and nobody knows how to do what you do, then, you know, what impact did you leave on the world? <laughs> yeah, and, it, you know, some people don't have that model. Some people find a little bit of magic that they have and they want to keep it all to themselves because of this scarcity mindset that, oh, if I share it, then people won't go to just me. And I know. this is one of the most disappointing things that I see in the field is this scramble of the old way of proprietary you know, technologies and music and every, let's lock everything down and force people to come to us and only us because we're something different and it's not open source. And I just shake my head and say, this is not the way, you know, we're doing, and I use this, you know, this obviously this phrase has been used and misused in many ways, but this is doing the work of the divine. Like this is, we're doing God's work here and, and the way, the nature of God and all of the abundance of love that's everywhere and the desire for all people to heal, it is not in accord with sheltering medicine and saying only me and only me can do this. Like 
open source all of this yeah. like all of the different techniques all of the different ways and as many people who can do it as possible great and that goes from everything from community building to working with people like if you have something that works share it share it you know share talk the about the yeah <laughs> talk about the ways and trust that the more you do that the abundance is going to flow back like the reciprocity of the universe it just works yep it works <laughs> you know like the more you give good luck good luck try to give it all away because you're just going to get it back you know and there are some people who are takers and you have to be mindful that there are going to be occasionally in a relationship or something you can give 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 and someone's just going to take this kind of vampiric energy have the discretion and boundary if you run across that aberrant person who's not in accord with reciprocity yeah yeah set limits be like okay i understand where you're coming from yeah totally but, you know this is this is the way that i I, do, I work this is the way i do my thing and and you know if if you want to be part of that you can but you know it's going to be a a give and take not just a take yeah but universally that law of reciprocity it runs deep it's like, karma deep, it literally deep, is karma. deep deeper than we can even possibly fathom and we can throw words at the way to describe it but it's just like one of those fundamental laws of the universe you know like you have love you give love away guess what that love's coming right back and it's coming back instantly you know yeah. and it's just it's just the nature of the nature of reality all right there's one more thing i want to talk to you about before we uh before we wrap this up which do you, is do you mind if i add one thing to what please you yes please so I really appreciate that you brought in the idea of doing divine work in the sealing process because mm -hmm. I think that that word is not used enough in terms of the way we think about healing. It really is, it really is divine and sacred in, in what it is. And I think that's also at the same time what gets people caught up because you start thinking as a healer that when you facilitate a radical transformation for someone that you are therefore the conduit <laughs> of divinity itself. Yeah. Right. And that is what starts to set the ego on this path that leads people to make really bad choices that are sure. ego driven scarcity survival choices like what you were just talking about rather than the choices to share and to enrich the community. And so the way that the way that I like to think about it is that that what we're actually doing is we're facilitating the ability for our clients or the people we work with, the people who seek to be healed, to nurture their own personal connection to the divine. And that is intuition, mm -hmm. right? So that foundation of self-trust that we build based on what the Shipibo people describe as the four pillars of self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and self-love, they support by nurturing and practicing those emotional skill sets, just like working out in the gym, you build and strengthen the foundation that are the four pillars support, which is trust in myself. And then that trust in myself is my connection to the divine that we all have access to, right? Yeah. Like I am not the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have the ability <laughs> to circle. access Christ-like experiences because he's part of all of us as is everything in the yeah. world around us so by allowing by by remembering that we all have that ability to connect to the divine and then share that with others it also helps to remind us of how interconnected we really are and that this is not this is not something that's unique to me because i went to medical school and i'm the healer i had these transformative psychedelic experiences and i'm the one who's going to heal you it's not about that it's not about you <laughs> And the great healers all will say that, you know, whether it's Borangi, who's a, an amazing medicine man that I work with, who does this 
really unique kind of somatic bodywork release technique that I've been apprenticing with. Ultimately, he finishes that and he's he's like, I didn't do anything. I just surrendered to what needed to be done. And, and it's just, it's almost as you give up, even though what my experience was, Porangi just did some magical shit. And he's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, like, the magical shit came through me, but right. it's not mine. And, you know, I was just, I was just there as a conduit. And it's this humility. That In fact, all it's the, yours. Exactly. Yeah. Like you, you working with, you know, the mystery, capital M mystery mm -hmm. combined to create this process. And I was, in some way, just a facilitator, just a bridge, just that chakaruna to use the Quechua word, to bridge you to your potential healing that's available. And, Beautiful thing. Yeah, and it's the idea of the hollow bone. And it's, you know, I recently sat with an ayahuasca shaman and, uh, you know, we're in the closing circle, the candles are lit after the experience and it was mind blowing what he, what he channeled through all of his music. And, uh, and he goes, well, what happened? you know yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I, i'm just here now like i don't i was i was gone for a while i was just yep. uh, he was just absolutely in the flow and the music that was playing was being played through him and he was like and then his then his personality is back online right. and he's smiling like what happened how was it you know even though he knows he was there but right. nonetheless he's giving it all back he's giving yep. it all back to the ayahuasca herself to all the guides all the helpers to you who did the work like mm -hmm. you're just always giving it back away and in that way it prevents you from getting this inflation of i did this and i have this no 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 you just got out of the way more right like you know you're just getting out of the way of what's possible for everybody such yeah. a beautiful model to, to always remember and that allows us to see the healing process clearly, right? Yeah. It's like if you're looking at healing and you're trying to heal people, but you're looking through a lens of your own ego all the time, then it's not a clear lens. You're not getting a clear view. You're getting a distorted view, Yeah. right? You're getting a view that is completely clouded by your insecurities and your sense of self that is fractured and probably wounded and needs a little <laughs> bit of more attention, right? Yeah. And that's okay, but we should also acknowledge that that's happening sure. and do that work and make sure that we don't inflict ourselves on others because then that leads to that that cycle of the instant gratification cycle again right yeah. whereas going back to what you just said a second ago which was really eloquent is this idea that you give love Lo love and gratitude i feel like are the most underappreciated science things in science but mm -hmm. also one of the like the best human superpowers because they are sustainable they are free <laughs> and they give back almost instantaneously yeah. almost right you you show gratitude you show love and you get it back relatively quickly not always in the ways that you would expect but yeah. it comes back that is a positive feedback loop of joyfulness and and happiness and things that can be shifted and molded in a way that is like really fundamentally empowering right it shows you that you can put out positive energy in the world that was actually one of the most fundamental uh fundamentally important things that happened to me in my own life was that i going back to the bullying in school thing right i had been picked on by other kids in school i had been i thought that while that was happening that that's how kids were supposed to treat each other Right. And so I went home and I picked up my brother. And I'd never done that before, really. And um, that started a cycle. And then um, a feeling, just being able to feel in control by having somebody lower than me that I could yeah. push around. 
right? Yeah. Which is me inflicting my insecurities on someone else or many other people. And which the bullies probably had happened to their older exactly. brothers or their older kids or their father or whoever that was. Exactly. And and so recognizing there was one point in my life that it was around, I want to say, I can't remember the exact time frame, but because it all just kind of blends together, but it was around sometime in like high school, maybe freshman year of high school, because it was a transition period where I had an opportunity to go to another place where I didn't know the same kids. Um, and I was had an opportunity to make new friends. And I was like, I wonder what happens if I just start being nice to people. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what if I don't spend all of my time thinking about what other people think about me and expressing like overconfidence and, and uh, you know, trying to present a version of myself that's not true to who I am. That's like this tough guy or like what X, Y, Z, whatever. And, but it, regardless, not a version of myself that was true to me and not be nasty to people or not be mean to people to try to make them feel badly about themselves. But what if I was just, just nice, just friendly, gracious, thank, thankful, and loving. And let's see how that goes. Because this is not making me feel good right now. <laughs> yeah, like sure. the current thing that I'm doing, this just isn't making me feel that good. I don't feel like happy at the end of the day when I get home. I feel like I want to douse myself in video games for three hours, right? Right. So if I, so I tried it. And what what is better about life than the experimentation process, right? You try it, you see what happens. And what happens? You tr I tried it. And people started being nice to me back. And I was like, Oh my God, I found it. I found <laughs> the secret. Yeah. And there was a moment where I'm like, holy shit, why didn't I think about this earlier? But that quickly faded because I realized that I had found it now, right? Yeah. And you find it now and you find it when you find it. Everybody's on their own journey. Everybody finds what they're supposed to find at whatever time. And I started doing it and it literally changed the entire course of my life because it allowed me to actually build meaningful friendships with people which were not just based on making each other feel like shit it was about making each other feel good and be and feel strong and feel rewarded by being together right not feel like you're together because you don't have anyone else to hang out with <laughs> yeah yeah and interesting about being nice is it requires a genuineness right because nice can be a strategy sure and i i've i've fell into this trap where I would be really nice to the girls that I liked. So nice that it wasn't even me. Usually I'm kind of a jokester and I'm like, you know, with my buddies, I was, you know, we're all cracking jokes yeah. and we're playing around and we're palling around and I have nothing I'm trying to get from them. I don't want them to like me back in any way. I'm just being me. And so I had a lot of male friends and, but then there was always the girl all through until I was about 21 and I kind of figured this out but I would be so nice that it wasn't even me. It was me playing a strategy of trying to be in this way. And all of them were repelled, like repulsed mm -hmm. by that in a certain way, because it wasn't authentic. They could like sense the strategy. Women know. Of me it being nice, know. right? <laughs> yeah. And then, but then there would always be the, there would always be the girl that I wasn't that fixated on, but yeah, they, but they were more like a buddy and I would treat them honestly and i'm a nice person so i'm gen genuinely and right. nice you know but they would like me and i would end up dating them like well this one this one likes me and i didn't figure out it was like oh that one likes me not because they like me because i'm being real right i'm being real and allowing the real niceness to come but if there's a way to make a joke i still make the joke you know we still right we still laugh we still pal around we still have fun in that way 
And then I finally got it. And I was like, oh man, like just be yourself. Yep. You know, like be yourself. And if you are a nice person, allow yourself to be nice, but don't try to be more nice than you are because you think that's a strategy that'll work because people will pick up on that shit. Right. And nice isn't, and you bring up a great point, right? Nice is necessarily the best word to describe it. It's really gracious, right? right? It's like we all strive to live a life of grace, of free-flowing smoothness right like bruce lee you be, you you when water bec- is in a cup it becomes the cup when water is in a stream it becomes a stream it's not mm. in the stream and then thinking about how it used to be in a cup it's like it's not like that you know and so that's that's true grace can we ever get to the point of water eh, maybe maybe good not ideal though yeah but it's a good thing to live up to right and the and the fastest way to grace is to practice gratitude, just yeah. like exercising in the gym, right? It's just we don't, weren't taught that you can exercise emotional muscles. So if you really think about it in a tangible way, it's I am using my skill of gratitude to express graciousness towards others, and then I feel gratitude back, and then I get that much closer to being graceful, mm-hmm. right? And the same with love. And the same with compassion, the same with forgiveness. And they all form positive feedback loops that feed back on each other in a constructive way that facilitates growth rather than a way that facilitates us feeling kind of lost and empty at the end of the day. Right. Right. And even if you don't know where the path is going, it at least helps you, it at least helps you get a little bit closer to finding it and and you know guides you on your way. Yeah. And helps and, and and entices people, most importantly, entices people around you to be more likely to support you on your path and not and not take you away from it. Being devious attracts devious people, right? <laughs> Just yeah. like impulsivity attracts impulsivity. Right. It's not and trains for it. It's not a it's not that much of a mystery. So you want to be, you want the people around you that you want that you you know that em, that are emblematic of the way you want to be as a human being if you are insecure in yourself and you're going out trying to meet people you're going to attract insecure people yeah and if you are secure and confident and thoughtful and gracious you will attract those kinds of people so thinking about who we want to be around us is really important as a self-reflection of who we want ourselves to be because that's what radiates out into the world yeah, your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, 100%. All right, so I want to talk about this topic because, and this is not a recommendation, and I put this out as a caveat, but in my own personal experimentation process, um, ketamine and cannabis have a very interesting pairing that mm-hmm. I find to be incredibly valuable from a, just a healing standpoint, from an exploration of my own consciousness standpoint. And these are in most places now cannabis is legal and in most all places places, actually ketamine is legal it's something that i think is not talked about that much and i don't know what why that interplay and why that interaction is so potent but it really is and there's something that's i think it's because the cannabis really awakens this somatic awareness and so when you enter into what can feel like a completely dissociated void state that the ketamine can often bring you to you're also the body's coming with you in an interesting way and then the body is communicating with this other access to the quantum if you will 
and what can happen in that pairing has been really really interesting for me so i was just wondering if you've you know heard about this experienced it or if anybody's looking into this particular combination so it's definitely a thing of interest yeah phil, <laughs> phil wolfson who's you know i think he just just turned 80 i think he he is a you know he's been doing this for really long time because he was one of the original psychedelic psychiatrists mm-hmm. and he he ha- is a huge fan of the of the combination. When we say cannabis, people often get confused, right? Because cannabis has like two hundred plus cannabinoids in it. So we're really talking like THC, THC yeah. and ketamine. And he's a big fan of this combination. I think that the tricky part of it is dosing, right? Right, because cannabis can cannabis is a tricky, trick, tricky. Ooh, creature. it's tricky because it can be the most challenging psychedelic experience, or it can be the most fun, right? <laughs> and, it can and, it, be, and it can be both. And cannabis is actually a psychedelic. I, I people don't talk about it that way, but it really is, and it's just a matter of dose, right? right? Like the the Parisians used to have their hashish parties, and they would talk about like tripping for hours and hours on hash brownies after dinner, you mm-hmm. know. And that was a real. That's those are psychedelic experiences, and um, the the reason why I brought up the Shipibo people in, in earlier was because they have this really interesting way of thinking about these plants and chemicals and everything that we put into our bodies or interact with, which is that everything is a spirit. doesn't matter whether you believe it or whether you see it or acknowledge it on a regular basis. Everything has a spirit. Everything that is a thing in this world has a spirit. Those spirits have different sides of them just like we do. So cannabis has a light side and a dark side. The dark side they call the shitana, and the light side I can't, the name's escaping me. But they they all have it have those things, and depending on how you interact with the medicine, it will impact which light and dark parts of that medicine or that thing you're interacting with come to the surface and express themselves more. Mm-hmm. So if you, the way they believe it, which I think probably makes a lot of sense, is that if you use something respectfully, like if you use cannabis intentionally and you use it you know with with an intention to do to access a specific part of your consciousness within the ketamine experience and you take the time to investigate how much you should take right. and get the dosage right so you don't go into like a paranoid spiral of upset on discomfort sure. right that feels like it's last days <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> when um, is this ever going to end <laughs> and you're like yeah like clawing at the walls <laughs> yeah, like for sure. can't can't mo- can't move because of the ketamine yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> and like this is like this is a real thing that happens to people because they haven't taken the time to to figure out how to use the medicine respectfully and right. and that time is respect putting in the time to figure out how to use something properly is respect and it's a way of showing respect and so there, there is absolutely use for these. It definitely has not been studied well. Mm-hmm. I, haven't, I don't know any publications that have really looked at it. But in the clinical world, especially where cannabis is legal, there are people who will use THC to deepen the ketamine experience in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it's really quite interesting. And, and, and on another note with cannabis, people will use CBD, high quality, of course, CBD, um, that's pure and doesn't have any contaminants in it. Um, and CBDA, which is the acidic, more anti-inflammatory form of CBD to calm and reduce the dissociative effects of ketamine and psychedelics yeah. when people are having a little too much. And so there's there's different ways that the cannabinoid system the, the in our bodies, our endocannabinoid system can be modulated 
very carefully if we take the time to understand it to actually really curate the ideal experience healing experience for someone based on what we as the healers know about them as i see it like that's the container that we're creating yeah right somebody comes to us and if we you know if we say if i'm i'm a psychiatrist i'm a western trained psychiatrist somebody comes to me as a patient says i'm suffering i've tried prozac and zoloft and and all these other you know western prescription medicines and then and they're like, Doc, I need help with something different. I'm like, well, have you tried this other Western prescription medicine? <laughs> right? <laughs> They've already completely lost faith in that. Yeah. How is that helping them? They, they often usually need intensive talk therapy and time to come off of prescription medicine that they feel hasn't been managing their symptoms well, to reorient with themselves and get familiar with who they are unmedicated, and then have the opportunity to be in a safe container where we can explore other legal alternatives like ketamine and cannabis therapies and cannabis and ketamine therapies potentially mixed together and see where those go but there's it's a it's in a real it's a really exciting time to be able to start to explore that yeah i agree and, and interestingly one of the most profound psychedelic experiences of my entire life happened fairly recently and i was i would experiment with a little bit just a little puff of uh you know cannabis flower in and then a ketamine journey and it was always it always deepened the experience and also helped with the integration and there was i found a lot of benefits but the big most profound journey happened when my wife was given a bottle of cbd from a friend and i'm used to cbd isolate mm -hmm. where it's not full spectrum there's no thc yeah but a lot of the cbd out there has like 0.3 percent or something like that right. like a small amount of thc and so if you take a, like the regular tincture you're getting very little almost like sub noticeable amount but for whatever reason i was used to and you know dr dan engel talks about higher dose cbd and doing that every once in a while and i was like ah fuck it i'll go for a high dose tonight and thinking that it was cbd isolate well it wasn't and this was like 10 o'clock at night and I just unscrew it instead of taking the dropper. I just take a swig out of the bottle, right? And then we're watching, we're watching, a, <laughs> we're watching a movie. And we're in a hotel in Sedona. We're watching a movie, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to like massage my the fashion, my face, and I'm like, wow. And I was like, oh no, I'm high. I just got high and I'm gonna just get more high. And she's like falling asleep. And I'm like, babe, 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 I'm getting really high. She's like, oh, really? That's nice. That's nice. And she falls asleep. I'm like, fuck. Like, this is, I'm getting really high. And I also had some ketamine trochies there. And I was like, all right, well, look, I know what this really high experience is like. And it's feeling pretty good, but I'm gonna take a trochie with it to see what happens. All right. So, trochie dissolves in my mouth. And the combination of, and I, I have to give credit to the other cannabinoids that were in the CBD. That's the way I ingested it in this time. And I haven't duplicated the experiment, but the trochee and the, and the full spectrum CBD, all of a sudden, it almost like knocked off whatever regulates muscle control. And I was going through the most potent fascial reconstruction self-massage I've ever experienced in my life. It was like my whole body while you were touching your face not or no without no touching, touching. Oh, like wow. things would muscle like systems of fascia would fire and stretch and pull like behind my ears behind my eyes places that i have no conscious control over would just happen and it was like everything in my whole structure was realigning and at the same time as the instrument got released relieved of its tension like just 
pure wisdom was coming through wisdom about non-judgment particularly really like understanding the nature of it and it was such a beautiful like beautiful experience that happened you know kind of on accident really at Mm -hmm. that point and uh it's again this is not a recommendation i'm not saying like people everybody go out and do this don't you know don't listen to me i'm just sharing my own experience with it but it led me to believe that there's there's amazing promise in exploring this combination we're still on the frontier of understanding each one of these individually like what is the what is the highest use of you know cannabis and thc what is the highest use of ketamine and so no hurry but but ultimately you know as an expert in in many of these different things i thought i would just share that and venture that as just one of those kind of blinking asterisks that i have because i've done every pretty much every psychedelic medicine out there but i would rank this as one of my top five journeys and it was it's pretty amazing it's pretty it's pretty amazing it's pretty amazing so just wanted to kind of throw that out there as as this evolves and you know fractals out and studies get you know we're still learning about each of the compounds individually but in combination i'm I'm curious what that would yield if kind of wielded with a little bit more curation for sure yeah i really appreciate you sharing that i think we learn more from personal accounts of these kinds of this variety than anything else because mm-hmm. you can kind of imagine yourself someone can imagine themselves in your shoes in that setting um i think that the while ketamine is anesthetic and dissociative in that it creates this phenomenon of kind of separating our mind from our body a little bit um and then of course reconnecting it after it's after it's over um cannabis especially uh thc can create this interesting and, and especially thc of the sativa variety can create this interesting experience where you become more aware of tension in your body. Yeah. And uh, I know a lot of people who have this all the time, which is why they only smoke certain strains or ingest certain strains of cannabis in certain situations because they're like, I don't want to be aware of my tension. Like, I know I'm tense, right? right? right. If I can't do anything about it, why would I do this to myself? <laughs> right, right, right. And I'm kind of that way too. Right. You know, I wasn't trying to get high. I right. don't really, right. I right. didn't, I didn't, I wasn't looking forward to the experience that I was about to have because it made, it generally makes me so aware. And then I can do something manually, like roll right. out on a ball, do some yoga and that'll help relieve it but i have to relieve it right but then for whatever reason the ketamine allowed that intelligence in my body to surpass like to override whatever thing that made me feel like i couldn't control like i couldn't make my scalp move back without flexing muscles mm-hmm. it was just happening wow. like the 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 way that the fascia was turning off and on was on full automatic pilot to such a degree that i was just like whoa like yep. the body is so infinitely wise and intelligent and miraculous of what it's capable of yep. if we can just kind of take a back seat and, and i think it was the ketamine that allowed that part of my mind to take the back seat yeah so that the cannabis would say oh cool i get the i get the wheel right oh, we're gonna fix all this <laughs> shit you know like i'm not just gonna show you what's tense i'm gonna fix it that's incredible you know and that was like that was just that mind-blowing like mind-blowing experience i'm getting chills now thinking about it it's just and that speaks to also what we've been talking about is you have one of those and you recognize how intelligent the body is right like fuck like this is we are divine incarnate like we are it's in there it's yep. like the potential beyond what we would ever even imagined is possible and yep. uh, and that was one of those things where like, you just can't forget it after that 
Yeah, it's an, it's a really interesting experiment that you did on yourself. I know, <laughs> yeah. right? It's yeah, Oof. it's uh, but but I mean to to be able to have that kind of experience, it's it, it's an incredible teaching moment, right? Yeah. You you also were the lucky in that you went into it un, relatively unintentionally and sure. still had a very powerful uh, healing experience from it, and yet you you know I think a lot of that probably had to do with the way that you embraced the experience. You went into it not not necessarily i could be wrong but not necessarily like judging it and like oh man no. i fucked up well, i'm high right now and like, <laughs> and like now i'm just gonna get you know take this other medicine that will hopefully yeah. make me less high and you weren't like escaping any part of the experience right. it sounds like you kind of dove into it yeah and tried to make the most of what it was yeah. for, based on what was going on and that approach i think likely is what set you up you know literally putting your putting your head into the mouth of the beast right you're setting yourself up recognizing that that you don't have anything to be afraid of in this moment. It's it's just you, and anything that comes up is you. The tension is just you. If it's there and you're aware of it, it probably wants to be let out in some way. Yeah, and it does speak to this incredible, uh, this incredible ability of the body to heal itself. And yeah. I, you know, we're part of the most disruptive nature of trauma, which we've all had, especially after this year, is the idea. And by trauma, I mean just like bad stuff that happens, sure. right? Not things that cause PTSD, but just bad stuff happening stress can't stop stress from happening it's going to happen sure. and one of the one of the most difficult parts of that is thinking that we don't have or that it teaches that we don't have that that the that there's something conspiring against us right that the why me mm. right that that's another narrative like why did this happen to me what is wrong with me that this happens to me and not to anybody else well, guess what? It happens to everyone else. It's just it's a little different for everyone, right? And so there's nothing wrong with you. It's quite the opposite, that the universe is actually conspiring with you to try to help you along the way and, and along your path. And these different things that happen are not personal. It's just, it's just ways to create more opportunities for growth. Every challenge, everything that happens that comes at us that's stressful is just another opportunity for growth. That's a, that's something that we have control over, right? We can change at any moment from the mindset of why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? To I'm grateful for this opportunity to grow and become stronger and better at being me. Yeah. Right. Amen. Well, I told you at the start of this podcast that you said most people call me Dr. Dave. And I said, I'm not going to call you Dr. Dave until I receive therapy from you. <laughs> and today on this podcast, I received therapy. So thank yes. you, Dr. Dave. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> for offering this. Uh, you mentioned your website and uh, where, if people want to buy uh, Apollo, if they're interested in what we talked about with that, what's, uh, what's the best place to do that? ApolloNeuro.com. A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com or ApolloNeuroscience.com also works. Uh, and yeah, and you can check us out on socials. If anybody's on Twitter or Instagram, you can hit me up at uh, Dave Rabin on Twitter. I always struggle to remember these. <laughs> and at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and I'm, it's always good to hear from people because, you know, we need more human contact in our lives. And Clubhouse. Clubhouse is, I don't know if you've been on Clubhouse, but I haven't. It's no. really fun because I've especially during COVID, I don't know if we, we started the Psychedelic Clubhouse and the Psychedelic News Hour to help educate people on these conversations and this material so that we can decrease the stigma and the anxiety around psychedelics a little bit in the community and it's been working it seems and and it makes you feel when not every every app can also be used for 
you know, feeling bad and feeling good as well, right? But I think when used intentionally, just keyword there, that uh, it really makes it, it's it allows us to feel connected and together, like you're sitting in a living room having like a conversation, like we used to back more often before COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And during COVID, it was it was a game changer because I felt like we were having like you know, I'd be having conversations with like you know people like Rick Doblin and. And Rachel Yehuda and Jamie Wheel, and then other people would come up, and be like, "Oh, I heard you're talking to Jamie Wheel. I want to join this conversation." And then Jim Fadiman's in there, right? And then, wow. and you know, and so you, it's like a, it's like a psychedelic salon that used to happen back in the day that doesn't really happen as much anymore because we're so far apart. And at the same time, it reminds us of the miraculous power that you feel and the goodness that you feel just simply by feeling together and feeling connected together with other people who also recognize that even though they're world famous people and they have, you know, done world changing things and maybe others of us haven't done that much stuff of that kind yet, that we're all still just human, right? We all have that in common and that's more important than literally everything else. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Dr. Dave. That was a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan Giles. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Love everybody. Thanks, Aubrey. See you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Dr. Dave Rabin. If you're interested in the Apollo Neuro that we talked about on the show, go to apolloneuro.com slash Aubrey. And definitely check out everything that Dr. Dave's up to. I love you guys, and I will see you next week.